thumbs up to Gumbit. Okay, so uh, thanks, little robot man, for the introduction. Uh, this is uh, Advanced After Combat, podcast about wargaming, uh, the war games we play and our experiences playing them. I'm Dave. Uh, on the podcast is Jason. And we have, a, we have a new development. Uh, Marshall has decided that he uh, wants to do other things and perhaps organizing tours to Jamaica or braiding people's hair or whatever. So... Uh, We've now got uh, a new host on the podcast named Keith. So, Keith, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, my name is Keith. You may recognize uh, me from Board Game Geek, where during all of 2013, I wrote a blog a day called The Everyday Gamer. So you could say my life is a bit of an open blog. Uh, having to fill up 365 articles was uh, a challenge. So I'm really looking forward to the slower pace of things with... Uh, doing the podcast, and obviously this is a podcast I uh, very much respect, so uh, I know that uh, I was sad to hear, as I'm sure all of you are, that, that Marshall wasn't going to be on any longer. He was certainly a, a great guy, very informative, and obviously hilarious, so um, won't try to replace him at all, but uh, you know, I, I hope to be a, a, a an interesting voice for you here on the podcast. Sure. Well, that was a lot of good stuff about Marshall. That was... <laughs> <laughs> we love Marshall. <laughs> No, we left on good terms for buddies, so it's nothing like that. It's just actually I had to move on and do other stuff. So, uh, Keith, a couple quick questions. Uh, what's your sure. favorite cocktail slash beer? Oh, so uh, I'm definitely not a, I'm not a beer guy. Uh, I'm definitely a whiskey guy. Uh, so any sort of scotch or whiskey is, is good for me. If it's a brown alcohol, I'm down for it. Uh, I'm a big fan of an everyday drink for me would be a, a VO, and, and that's what I have right now. Clink, clink. Uh, but obviously, on, on special occasions, I think I posted in the on the forums that I'm a I'm a Glen Fittich guy when when I can get a hold of it. So I enjoy that as well. Bushmills or Jameson? Uh, Jameson. Oh no! Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> You're off to such a good start too. <laughs> um, so Keith, let me ask you uh, what what was your what's your Grail war game? What's the one war game that if you could play that that you would absolutely play anytime you could? Oh, small world by a long shot. That's a war game, right? <laughs> war there. So is is that's a fantasy game? It says slaughter right on the box. <laughs> yeah, I'm teasing. So um, that's a really good question. I think if I if I had to pick one war game that I could play over and over and over again, um, you know, obviously I, I've been an ASL player for uh, 13 years off and on. I sold my collection off. Uh, little more than a decade ago and then three years ago was like, hey, you know what I should do? Pay double what I paid originally for this and, and start buying it all again. So uh, the reason I do that is because it's infinitely replayable. I mean, if you start looking at the number of scenarios and content um, available for it, it's just staggering. I mean, it's more than you could play in a lifetime um, for sure, um, which is really a good thing, I think. And then also there's a really big group of local players um, around here who are huge into it, and there's a local tournament that happens here every March. So it's really well-supported and easy easy to find face-to-face games for me, which makes it a huge plus. Okay. Jason, I know you guys are huge fans of ASL. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no experience with it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I know I've gotten some shit for apparently not liking ASL. That's not the situation. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have played Squad Leader, uh, the original... And, uh, 
I would say I just don't have a lot of experience with it. I have read the rules. I have, you know, kind of looked into it, but I've actually never gotten very serious about playing it. So. Yeah, I think I sort of lucked out because I was able to, in both cases, back in, you know, 99 when I originally started getting into it. And then again, uh, now as I sort of started playing again, um, because of the availability of face-to-face folks, it's really easy when you're playing just to, like, go grab somebody who's been playing it for 25 or 30 years and say, hey, I need you to tell me how this works. And they come over and walk you through it. So that really lowers the, the barrier to entry on it. And, and also, you know, I think there's some, some merit to you can get a game of it in, no problem, at a game store in, like, three hours. Um, so that's that scratches that war that's game itch good. for sure. And it's it's short enough where you feel like you've had some meaty combat and you can pack up and be home, you know, before midnight or before the store closes, that kind of thing. What's your favorite war game made in the last year? Oh, geez, made in the last year? I think Cuba Libre um, is is incredible. Uh, the coin series for me is is obviously something that I feel pretty strongly about. But <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but I think that Cuba Libre is just such a great asymmetrical war game from the sense that you get this great political feel for what was going on in Cuba during the Cuban Revolution and these kind of weird off-the-wall motivations that people had that just seemed really kind of at odds even with themselves at times and that's what the game just does a great job of doing and it again it's in a condensed format where you know Andy and Abyss and a distant plane just kind of get gigantic so you end up having these five plus hour games of it and, and that gets to be tricky to fit into a day and you know nobody really wants to split a coin game over a couple of days okay how do, how do you feel about uh going to a convention and you're given a t-shirt as part of the convention and uh people put that convention t-shirt <laughs> on and wear it all day long even though it's basically been sitting in a uh a Chinese container uh, sailing over from China for the past two months. Wow, that was a really leading question. Hard, hard hitting question. Yeah, my goodness. I, no, I would go either way on it. I just as somebody as somebody who has actually worn one of those T-shirts straight out of the box with pride, I'd, I'd I'd probably wear it. When I got the weird itches or like a strange fungus growing on my neck, I might think twice about it. But until that happens, I'd probably wear that shirt with a little bit of pride. So you, if you went to a convention and you got the t-shirt as part of your gift package, you would then put the t-shirt on. And wear it. Like, yeah. Or the yeah. next day. Yeah, well, I'd probably put the, it on the next what's, day. What's the purpose of wearing it? Did you only have like two t-shirts and it's a three-day convention? I mean, they know you're at the convention. Yeah, but when you go out for lunch, you want to, you know, weird people out as much as possible and be like, hey, look, there's war in this convention hall over here. You should know that right off the bat about me. Second of all... I'm not ashamed to wear this extra large T-shirt around town. Show off my <laughs> Panzer Kampfwagen. Okay, I have a, that's now I have a follow-up question. Then, during lunch, you go out to a bar, or restaurant nearby. There's cute waitresses there. Do you keep your badge name tag on, or do you take it off and put it in your pocket? Oh, I never wear my. I never wear those badges. If somebody asks for it, I'll pull out of a pocket and show it to somebody. But I'm not one to, you know, wear something like that around my neck. That's I don't do that in my job. <laughs> oh, so basically, you just don't wear it at all. You're just always ready in case you yeah. shoot somebody. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, that, and that's the scenario that I think about too, just in the back of my head. If I have to shoot somebody, will my name badge be a problem? 
That's right. <laughs> or there's a hit and run situation in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. also don't, there are cameras no everywhere. plates on my car either. It's yeah. <laughs> That's good. It's good. Very stealthy. Jason, do you have any questions? I don't. Okay. I wasn't. Pre- I wasn't prepared for questions. I just <laughs> welcome to Keith. I mean, he the content he produces on his blog is is a. Uh, far and away above anything we do. So yep. he's going to definitely bring some class to this thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to ask him about the bench press thing because I know he's just going to lie. So I'm not even going to try to try to keep some that, kind of... That's where you lay down and hold that, that bar thing, right? And then there's like... The heavy a, thing. There, yeah, there's some like heavier things on the <laughs> on each end, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> is, that how it works? Is, that, is that how it works? <laughs> I've seen that once. I think it was in a movie. It could be a low number. <laughs> <laughs> But just tell them you're going for tone. Not you're not trying to build bulk. Not That's not right. building mass. You're going for muscle tone. That's the key. I feel like if I worked out, it would very much get in the way of my eating habits, and that would be problematic. And drinking habits. Yeah, I agree. Nobody wants to roll in with the meat sweats, half drunk, and try to lift weights. Yeah, doing yoga drunk is uh, an experience <laughs> I I had recently. That was. It makes me not want to do yoga. I so. think for somebody else that might be called rock one bottom. Or the other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's far from bottom for me. <laughs> okay, so uh, what about games? What games have you guys purchased recently? Jason, you got anything? Uh, purchased, um, well, this kind of goes into talking about uh, New Year's resolutions. I, I I don't know if you guys do this. Um, I tend not to. I if I need to make a change in my life, I want to make a change. I don't need to do it on January first. But I did, you know, with the new year, say I I'm not going to buy any games for a while. I have about 15 unplayed games sitting on my shelves that I need I need to attend to before I start buying anything else. Um, and I kind of left the caveat for myself that pre-orders are okay. And I think Dave, we talked about this on the last podcast. You know, pre-orders are okay. Well, January 11th, I got an email from Noble Knight Games. Hey, you're where there is Discord is here if you still want it. Sure. How much is it? (laughs) It's $140. Okay, yeah, I guess I still want it. So my resolution lasted about 11 days. Uh, My only recent purchase is where there is Discord. Well, the pre-orders sure. The pre-order is kind of false ones were only cost them like $140 to fight. So you paid pretty much real price for that conflict. I think so. (laughs) Yeah, I I treat the pre-order as my own self-control. Like you just put in all the pre-orders and then whatever, they come up when they come up and you can't fight it. You just gotta. Yeah, it's, it's there. It's out of my control. Um, so that's, that's the only game I've bought and probably the only game I'll buy for, for a little while. And that's a solo game. It's a solo game about uh, Falklands. But yeah, the Falklands, and I think it's eighty-five, right? Mm, crickets. Eighty-two. I think. 82. I think it might be. Yeah, I think it's earlier than eighty-five. Yeah, I think it's eighty-two. But that's it for me. What about you, Keith? Well, I'll run down what I've done in twenty fourteen so far. Uh, my sales of glory stuff came, so obviously that was an awful lot of stuff. Um, and that was, that was fun. I've had a chance to, to play that a little bit. Was that a Kickstarter? That was the Kickstarter finally shipped out. And from what I understand, it's still shipping to people like in Germany. I mean, it's been an epic shipping thing from them, which has been a whole other um, subject. But 
so yeah, Sails of Glory plus all of the extra ships for that. Uh, Pensacola, somebody listed it as a buy it now on, and sealed on eBay, just insanely cheap. So I couldn't avoid that. Um, so Pensacola, which is part of the, um, Great Battles of the American Revolution series, uh, uh, Hedro Hell, which is the second ASL Deluxe module. Again, somebody had that really cheap and it just kind of struck me as, oh, I can snag that. And they have some cool little, um, armored fighting vehicle cards in it that give you a nice rundown of some of the stats. Uh, Skirmisher One magazine, which, uh, supports the, uh, Great Campaigns of the American Civil War series. Uh, was able to pick that one up. A couple of ASL scenario packs, uh, Last Chance for Victory shipped, uh, which I've been kind of working through and um, have been really kind of enjoying that, although I'm still too early on to have done anything exciting. Um, an old uh, SPI re-release um, from TSR Firefight uh, picked up as well, along with oh, nice. uh, Freedom in the Galaxy. So one of the guild members had posted that they had that, and I watched some of the Callendale, uh videos, and Enrico seemed um, pretty jazzed by it. So I snagged that one as well when I was able to. But that's been that's been January. Now, Freedom in the Galaxy is that that's obviously who, who's making is that a naval or like an exploration game or what is that? It's Star Wars. Yeah, it's basically the game Star Wars with some very like very very loosely based names that. Uh, effectively give you a good chance to know who's who. I'm, I might try to do a little reskin on it and just make it Star Wars. We'll see. Now, is that an old game from way back? It is. So Freedom of the Galaxy, it looks like, was originally released in, like, 79 by Avalon Hill. So there was this period at Avalon Hill where they just did a ton of, like, fantasy and sci-fi game releases. And it was from, like, 77 through maybe 81. Um, it's that same area where they, they released... Uh, uh, Magic Realm was another one that came out. Merchant of Venus came out at that time. Dune. I mean, everything kind of came out that was sort of that, the more of their creative sci-fi type stuff came out all in that same chunk of time. And SPI was doing Aries Magazine at the same time. Right, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Everybody kind of... Speaking of which, um, somebody on Kickstarter is trying to not re-release, but restart Aries Magazine. Um, I don't know. Uh, Keith, obviously you're okay with Kickstarter. Um, Dave, I don't know about you, but on Kickstarter right now that they're, they're pulling for an Aries magazine update, um, which they're not running the campaign very well. Um, but I love science fiction and I love science fiction games. Um, so seeing something like that out in the marketplace, I think would be great, but I don't know if this is going to hit the spot. Uh, it doesn't look like they're going to make their funding, but thought I'd shout it out and see if people were interested. Let, in let me ask about the Kickstarter. I just want to be sure I understand it because I haven't really done a Kickstarter project yet. Um, do I pay up front for the product? Yes. Yes. And if the product isn't made, do I get my money back? Um, well, if the if the campaign is successful, then, then you pay. Uh, you don't pay when you pledge. Okay. You pledge during the, the funding campaign. If it hits its goal, it charges. Um, and then from there, it's kind of gray. There's not a guarantee that you're going to get anything out of it. Because I wasn't going to buy Thief, mm-hmm. but now I think I'm going to, and it's Kickstarter. So, mm-hmm. yeah, from them you'll you'll get it. Yeah, I think one of the things you really need to keep in mind, and somebody said this really early on, was that Kickstarter is really a 
uh, live action role playing game about you being a risk consultant and determining how you evaluate risk for different board games coming out. So, you know, there are some checklists you probably want to run down, like who's involved with this project. Uh, have they had a track track record of releasing things? You know, what is what games have they put out before? You know, do you trust them to go off and do their own thing um, and create rules kind of in a vacuum outside of a you know traditional development shop environment? So those are some of the things that you know I kind of think about with it, um, and then as well like you know what you're going to get out of it. So is there a substantial value to what you're going to get? Um, and that was kind of the thing with Guns of Gettysburg last summer. Mercury Games was relatively new. Um, this might, in fact, I think Guns of Gettysburg was their first release. Uh, it, was their it was their second release. Okay, yeah, I knew it was yeah. very early on for them. So, um, knowing that it was the only chance to get the Bowen Simmons game, to me, was a much bigger deal than you know if I missed out on the sixty-five bucks. Um, just from the standpoint that. If it wasn't this, it wasn't going to be anything. And Bowen had made that really clear up front. So in, in a case like a magazine, you know, there's so much that goes on with the production of a single game, let alone continually trying to produce high quality, you know, written content and solicit games from folks. I mean, not everybody's going to be able to lock up a Joe Miranda to go and build games just month after month after month and just crank them out. Um, so I think that's one of the trickier things that a magazine might have me scratching my head a little bit. And two, to make their margin, that feels like something that you'd be definitely able to get a hold of after the fact. Yeah, probably. I, but if they don't hit their goal, it probably won't happen at all. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what I look at is, do I want this to happen? Uh, if I do, am I willing to pay the, the money up front? The, the risk. So for this, for one issue, it's 20 bucks, um, which is less than a C3I or a, you know, strategy and tactics, um, to get some short fiction and some, and a game. I, th- I think isn't, isn't too bad. Was that like yeah. erotic Dune fan fiction? I, I hope not. <laughs> erotic Star Trek <laughs> Deep Space Nine fan fiction. <laughs> Ares it doesn't look very one. erotic in general. <laughs> I imagine, like, wasn't the original Ares a lot of role-playing and stuff like that, role-playing games? Yeah, so this looks like it has a little, um, like, miniatures blurb, um, two short stories, and then some um, like journalistic uh, looking at futurist type type things. And then a, a game that looks to be a game of the book, War of the Worlds. Okay. I want to say that somebody has made that game before. Like, if it wasn't strategy and tactics, it was somebody else. Like, I feel like that game is out there. But I don't I don't know well enough to know if it is or not. No. It just doesn't seem compelling. No? No. War, War of the Worlds? Sneeze? Yeah. It's, I mean, it just seems weird, yeah, right? Maybe the germs are... Are abstract. Maybe they can them. get Tom Cruise on board. That'll that'll certainly spice them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise on board, right? Everything he touches is gold or something. That's gold. <laughs> Maybe there's like a germ chit. You pull the germ chit at the end, and all the aliens die. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and then that's the end of the game. It's just floating around in this huge. <laughs> like, chip oh, pool. you lost because. Yeah. <laughs> what have you bought, Dave? Um, let's see. What have I bought? Uh, I bought uh, No Retreat North Africa because I drunkenly pre-ordered it and forgotten about it. That was good on your part, though. Yeah, just sat there germinating over at NWS until they shipped it to me. Um, I bought uh, Victory Denied. I bought 
to Kingdom of Heaven. Um, I think that might be it as far as my recent purchases. Oh, yeah, that's it. I mean, I bought a bunch of games at Christmas, but I think I might have talked about some. I also bought Federation Commander. Um, I've got a, a last last chance for victory. Uh, I've got that on pre-order, charging. Had some problems with the credit card, apparently, so we're getting that worked out, but I haven't received that yet. Was it your CBC code? It was not my illegally stored <laughs> CBC code. You know what it was? It was uh, I, there had been some fraud on the card. Hmm, that's unusual. There, so I'd had to get the card changed, and uh, and maybe that's why they don't let you do people storing your security yeah. codes. But um, it's curious. So the card had changed in the meantime, and so when they went to charge it, it wasn't the same card that they'd been given. So there was a problem. Yeah. So. yeah. That was disappointing. But you know what? To be honest, I've already got so many games out right now that. Uh, uh, Seki Gahara just came to me. Uh, so, like, I don't, I probably don't know if I'd be playing it anyway. So, A World at War has taken so much of my table space that I'm starting to actually get irritated with it because I need to get it out of there so something else can get on. So, did you buy those games new? Which ones? Yeah. A, vic- a Victory Denied. Yeah. yeah. I did it though with the winter sale. Oh, oh. So I got a Victory yeah. Denied for 20 bucks. Yeah. That's a great deal on that game. That's a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that too during the podcast. I'm going to do a quick review about that one because I have played that one and uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, not really No Retreat North Africa just because I haven't gotten a chance to really play that the way I would like to. But I had Famous Ken come over and we played the Crete uh, scenario of it. But I found out afterwards that the Crete scenario is actually just a change from the Af- North Africa one. So you're actually better off if you play North Africa first, and then it'll be easier to figure out how to do the Creek game. So I thought because it was smaller, it would be easier to play, but it's not mm. correct. So hmm. we played it. It was kind of cool. Paratroops landing. You could to figure out all the drops and we could bring your guys in, but uh, I'm going to wait till I really play the North Africa part of it before I talk about the game. So, so do you think you're going to drunkenly pre-order the 16 other editions of No Retreat that are now available for pre-order? No, I'm done. <laughs> I, I, I think the North Africa one is good. The other ones kind of leave me cold. Yeah, that was my feeling on it as well. I was like, okay, well, you have a good thing here. Maybe when you come back around to a topic that I'm more interested in, well, I'll get reinterested on this thing. But for the time being, I'm not going to just everything that says no retreat in front of it isn't going to end up on my shelf. Um, yeah, and I, I had a buddy who's into North Africa, so I thought, okay, well, this might be a good, he's a, more of a miniatures gamer. I thought maybe this would be a good game for him so I could kind of lure him in. Um so I like it. It looks good, but you know, it's it's uh, it's about as far as I'm going to go in the series. I think. Sure. Well, remember that I'll SCS like the is going to have a is going to have a nice big uh, North Africa treatment five mapper North Africa treatment coming out sometime in the next year or two. That ought to be exciting. I think uh, uh, Dean Essig and the gamers are working on that one. Yeah, I haven't done too many of the the games from that series, the SCS series. Uh huh. So I have to. I can only do two, so many series. That only has eight pages of rules, though. Yeah, it's probably a little simple for you. Yeah, and, but I mean, I my, I'm I'm I don't want to get carried away and be all over the place. So I'm kind of trying to structure my goals. I do like the MMP games because you can kind of learn the series rules and then continue to play the games. So yeah, that's an advantage. But I just went berserk on the GMT pre-order thing after Mike had posted that thing about. Uh, about uh, buying uh, fire, was it fire in the lake? 
Yeah. So now I'm just I'm I'm hanging on to about eight different pre-orders. So. <laughs> well, don't forget, uh, don't forget that they in their January twentieth, uh, and this is just I guess more of a PSA. Uh, there is pretty much a guarantee from GMT that they're going to print four out of print. Uh, CDGs this year and the games that they had listed are kind of languishing um, in the P series and Washington's War didn't wasn't sold out everywhere until like right around Christmas time of 2013 so you know those are some opportunities to get in on some games that if you Path of, Path of Glory is one of them I think as well uh, Empire of the Sun I think is in there for the people, uh, for the for the people is in there. Yeah, I think I think the games are Empire of the Sun, For the People, Paths of Glory, Successors, uh, and Washington's War. I think those are the ones that are listed there. So basically, all of them are going to get reprinted except for one, um, unless they are just saying, "Hey, these are some examples of CDGs we're looking to reprint." But um, that's an opportunity if people are kind of interested. And what was I thought was most interesting about that posting was that. Um, they said, well, hey, look, you can put in your order on this and tell us that you're interested, uh, but, oh, by the way, if you ever feel like you want to back out even before it's charged, you can go and do it, which I thought was really interesting for them to not say, like, hey, we're looking for commitments. I think they're really just sort of looking at the P500 series as like, hey, okay, we're going to start off this and everybody go and vote or something. Yeah, which is what it is anyway. Yeah, here's the things we're going to print eventually. What do you want? First? Have, have they have they done that before? Where they printed one that didn't reach the 500? World at uh, War. Yeah, they've done it a couple times. Yeah, World at War last year was like yeah. that. I mean, that was one that was not even really scheduled to print. I put my pre-order in for it, thinking like, oh, well, sure, this is going to print sometime. I'd love to have it. And then they're like, oh, by the way, we'll have it in July or August or whenever the heck it mm-hmm. came out. And that was kind of a surprise, a good surprise, but. Um, I think that happened because they're going to be releasing an additional expansion for that, which allows some pre-war build-up and some things gathering, like that that are going to be coming out. So, yeah, yeah, Gathering Storm, right? Yeah, I've got that on pre-order. I've got both both Next War games on pre-order. I've got uh, oh geez, what else? I've got Fire in the Lake. Fire in the Lake on pre-order. I've got a Hoplite on pre-order. Yeah, you didn't pre-order Fields of Fire. I did, uh, but did you? I went, nice. I went with the Marines one. I, yeah, oh, I yeah, yeah the Verb Volume Two. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I didn't go. What's the other one? Ninth, Ninth Infantry Regiment. Yes, I think it's Manchu. sitting behind me, but I'm too lazy to turn around and look. Yeah, I think that's the Manchus. I, uh, I. Uh, Work, fought, I've been fighting with them, but I worked a lot with them, so that's kind of a regiment I like. But I, I want to do some Marine stuff, so I haven't done. Boo. So that, that's it for me, pretty much for buying. Uh, Thief is something that's really tempting me. I was irritated though that they uh, didn't do historical. Like it's France, and there's all these uh, uh, provinces. You could very easily just made it a struggle between some dukes during the Hundred Years' War in France, and I think they chose imaginary fiefs, and that to me kind of turned me off a little bit. So what about it? Has you interested? Oh, the components look awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pathetic. I saw I, they had to, I, you know, Keith. I think I was looking at your blog or something. It looks like a Euro game. He had a picture of like some castles or little. I'm like, oh, I'm buying that. Yeah, they're gonna print. So for fifteen dollars as an add-on, they're printing twenty-five to thirty millimeter plastic. 
components for it that represent all kinds of stuff that go on the map, which Hell gives yeah. it a really cool 3D look to it. And and the cool part is, regardless of where you pledge, you can buy that. Yeah. So it ends February 10th, so I'm basically playing a game of chicken with that Kickstarter. Yeah. I'm about half well, a bottle of Bushmills away from ordering that thing. I think. They're, they're ten times over their, their goal, so it's, it's going to print. Now, I have till the 10th, right? So if, like, yeah. they can't just close it, it's, it ends on the day it ends. Yeah, you have until the 11th at okay. 2 p.m. Oh, and the other thing I bought, I got a, uh, Napoleon at Leipzig, the old Clash of Arms title, third edition. I bought it off Facebook. Oh, wow. Where'd you find it on Facebook? They've got a War Games Marketplace group on Facebook now. Uh, I think it's <laughs> run by Joel Totten from GMT. He used to work. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Man, this is a game I got for 25 bucks. Uh, it is a classic that I played when I was 15 years old in my basement in New Jersey and, uh, has those great hand-drawn maps that I always loved. And, uh, so for me, it's a nostalgic order, but I haven't been able to find the, th- there's five editions. This is the third edition that has these really, this, it's the same edition I played when I was a teenager. So I was like, Oh, that's great. That's pretty cool. So I bought it basically just for that. I've done that. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the 150th anniversary Gettysburg from uh, Avalon Hill, the one that came out in 1988, but that or 125th rather. But that was one where I was like, you know, this was the game that I just spent every single rainy day playing with my friend down the street. There's not a chance I can't own this. That would be ridiculous. So I, I feel the same way about Victory Games: The Civil War. That's a game we played like every weekend when I was in like ninth or tenth grade. So. Yeah, that's it's. It makes you like now that you know how great these games were. It makes you wish that you were younger again and bought more of them when you had all that disposable time. <laughs> I know, like in college, like I didn't really game much in college. I was doing fraternity stuff and partying, but I. Uh, that's Shame the on perfect, you. I know that's the perfect time to do it. You've got all these weekends to just hang out and uh, and uh, war game. I think that's the motto of most universities. They're like, come to Harvard, spend the weekend gaming. Because <laughs> you don't have to study at half those schools. Once you get in, that's the hard part. <laughs> well, um, we've what got, have you guys been talk playing? About it. Do you want, anybody want to do any game reviews? I've got a couple. Uh, I could start off with game reviews if, if you guys yeah, want to go ahead. Let's see. Sure. Well, the first one I've got is... I wanted to talk about Kingdom of Heaven. I bought this uh, because Lucas is, was such a huge fan of the game. Uh, Lucas is on our uh, guild, and I wanted to say, you know, we have a guild uh, for the podcast, and you're like, you know, you think, whatever, it's a guild, like, what's that, like a World of Warcraft thing, or I don't want to do that, that sounds stupid. But what it actually is is there's a community on BGG that is a lot of the guys who listen to the show uh, and they, they get on there and they talk about different things, gaming-related or not gaming-related. Um, but if you're a listener and you think you like some of the stuff we talk about, you can actually hook up with guys and and communicate with guys who also like the show and have some of the same interests. And you can meet. We've got a lot of really experienced war gamers that contribute to the guild. And you can actually set up vassal games or we'll announce when we're playing vassals. So I really recommend that if anybody... Uh, is interested in some of the stuff we talk about, and they want to maybe be able to talk about it during the month when the podcast isn't on. 
because frankly, on the podcast, we don't want to hear what you have to say. We're talking here. This is our time. Uh, but that's a time where you can talk to us. So go to BGG and look for the Advanced After Combat Guild, and I think that's a great uh, resource for the guys. So I don't know. Keith, you've had a brief experience probably since you've you've been participating more now that you're actually on the, the hosting team. What's, what's kind of your impression of the guild? Uh, so I think it's a, one of the things that's really struck me is if you look at all of the gamers that are on Board Game Geek and you take that like 15% of the people who are there to talk about gaming and not just, you know, use it as their like version of Facebook and you look inside of that 15%, the guys that are in the guild are the less than 1% who are always eager to play a game and they don't just want to know you know, what's going on with this game or who's releasing what or uh, how pretty are the components. Sorry. But they want to know how the games actually play and they want to hop on Vassal and play. One of the things that um, unfortunately hasn't worked out for me yet is I've had a lot of people contact me and say, hey, let's hop on Vassal and play this game. And I'm just like, I, I can't. I feel bad when I have to turn folks down for it. But um, I promise I will. Um, we'll get we'll get some Vassal games going. Um, I'm not a huge fan of playing Vassal myself. But I love Vassal and, and think it's one of the best things that's ever happened to board gaming. So uh, I'm excited, and I think that's one of the cool things about all of the, the guild members. You know, plus they don't get all you know bent out. You can have intelligent debate, and people aren't getting all bent out of shape every, every yeah. time you say something they don't agree with. Reporting to moderators and everything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a basic rule too. We don't. There's a couple basic rules. Just just first is if you post something and it's infuriating to people, don't delete it then. Because, it, you know, <laughs> then that just confuses things. If you, if you yeah. want to post something up there, stand by what you posted. And and don't report people. Let If somebody has to get reported, maybe we'll do it. But otherwise, I think, you know, people just have to be able to handle it. And I, I thought it was good. The, so far, any arguments or debates have been pretty reasonable. So I, I mentioned it because Lucas is on the guild. He turned me on to the game. Um, Kingdom of Heaven is, is a, it's a... Uh, it's about the, cru- the, the Crusades, so it's a uh, card-driven game, and it is uh, uh, point-to-point, like area movement. It's it's got some really good components. It's it's I really enjoyed the cards. I thought the cards were very colorful. I uh, I really liked the the uh, aspect that the cards added to the game. Uh, some CDGs. When you play them, they're basically just giving like ops values, or you know they don't seem like they really uh, have a great flavor for the game. But I, I thought that whoever designed this game uh, really spent a lot of time making sure that the events really reflect the historical things that happened during the Crusades. Um, every card has an ops value. Uh, every card has an event on it that, that can apply. Um, they also have siege events. Every card has a siege event. Some events might be battle events. Some events might be responses where you can react to what your opponent does. Uh, but yeah, the play is very exciting. Um, if you're into the Crusades, it's, it's definitely a game that you'll want to buy. Uh, I thought the components were nice. The map is attractive. And, uh, you know, there's maybe like five or six different sides to the game. But while it looks like there might be a lot of counters initially, the truth is there's, there's eight or nine scenarios or something like that. And, uh, most of the sides don't play in certain scenarios, just as, you know, as the Fatimids are involved, then those forces are there. Or, or if the Byzantines are involved, then, then their forces get into the game. And generally the way the game works is 
you you get dealt a hand of cards and you have your your troops out on the map and then you alternate playing cards so you can play a card for ops value or you can play a card for the event and when you have ops you can move your stacks but stacks can only move basically it's it's a similar system that people are used to with uh, card driven games where if a card has an ops value of one then uh, only a leader with an initiative of one or strategy mm-hmm. rating of one can activate on that card and if a card has an ops value of three then leaders with one two or three can activate so uh, the the cool thing about it though is there's also command ranking which represents kind of the way the no- nobility structure was so you can activate uh, a high-ranking leader who has a very high command rating can be activated to move, and then he can also, underneath him, activate a bunch of nobles who are uh, much smaller in rank, but then they, in turn, can activate guys. So you can, one big king or emperor in a stack can then move, you know, 20 to 30 units at once by just having a command structure under him. So, uh, so that was kind of realistic in that, uh, sometimes the high-ranking guy in the stack is not necessarily your best leader. So, like a lot of times you might have a very high-ranking king who has a very bad ops value. So, uh, you move your stacks, you fight battles, uh, you can besiege uh, castles or cities, you get victory points for capturing certain objectives. Uh, at the end of the turn, what's interesting is there's a, uh, a, a mustering phase and a... Uh, a redeployment phase at the end. So basically, at the end of a turn, uh, the troops go home. Like half of your troops, you know, they have to go back to their farms or whatever they do. They actually leave, go off the map back to your force pool, and then get mustered back at the beginning of the next turn. So it gives a real advantage because to the Crusaders because the Crusaders, they don't really leave because they don't have to go to farms or anything. So, for example, if you're the Muslims and you're conducting a siege, when the turn ends... You have to send some of your troops from your siege back, uh, go off the map. Meanwhile, the Crusaders can just stay there because they don't really have anywhere to go. The, the battles are pretty straightforward. There's, a, there's rules for attrition. Uh, Muslim cavalry forces can shadow Crusader armies and move alongside of them and force them to lose strength as they move. Uh, there's naval rules. There's a, there's a cool aspect when you do do a siege where you might play a siege card and then the defender plays a siege card. Then the attack, there's a, becomes a whole string of playing siege cards and you're basically trying to reduce the resistance factor of the castle you're attacking. And, uh, when you do finally decide to assault that castle, the end resistance factor is the shift bonus that the defenders get. So there's kind of a whole dynamic where you're playing card after card to try to reduce them. Meanwhile, they're trying to thwart your efforts to reduce them. And in the end, you do your assault. And while that's the only action you did out of seven cards you had, you might have burned uh, four to five cards doing that siege. So it just shows that your resources are being exhausted by this one major siege you're trying to uh, to accomplish. So um, I thought it was really great. I played a couple games of it. Let me see. I'm not quite sure how many scenarios there are with it. Um, let me go over. It. I took some notes from some of the games I played. Um, do you guys have any questions about the game, the dynamics, or? Yeah. So run through the siege uh, process real quickly, just at a high level, because I think that's something that is really kind of cool about this game, since 
that was such a huge feature of the Crusades. So um, if you want to give like a really high level overview of that, that'd be awesome. I think that benefit. Yeah, basically what happens is there's there's two types of locations that can be besieged: castles, which are counters, or cities, which are on the map. So there's maybe ten or eleven cities that are like walled cities, and then there's castles, and you can actually put castles down. I mean, so castles basically are a unit that, that's present for you. Um, and, and one of the cool things about the the role the castles play, they're they're both categorized basically as strongholds. Strongholds can protect you from attrition, and they can also cause attrition to the enemy. So the Christians can move past Muslim strongholds, like, but they suffer attrition for passing them because it's kind of like the castle's garrison can raid uh, raid their supply lines. So castles offer you kind of a safe haven where you can uh, get your supply back, and so castles and, and cities become very valuable. Oh, and one point, too, before I, I say any more because I forgot to mention it, is one of the cool things about the game, too, is while some of the forces are Muslims and some of the forces are Christians, it's quite possible to have a Muslim nation fighting on the side of the Christians. And through diplomacy, you can kind of play certain cards to sway. So you could have the Syrians decide that they're going to fight for the Christians in a particular crusade, which occasionally happened. I mean, there was a lot of dissension between the ranks. Or the the Latin Franks or the Byzantines might go neutral, and then the Christian player can no longer control those technically Christian forces because that nation has become neutral. So I thought that was kind of a cool aspect of the diplomacy. Okay, so, so sieges. Basically, your army marches and goes to a castle. The first thing it's going to do is it calls for surrender. There's a chance for for it just to, to intimidate the castle into surrendering. If the castle has a particularly low resistance factor, maybe because there's no units in it, or uh, or there's a variety of modifiers that can affect it, there's a chance that it'll it might just surrender to to you based on a die roll. Now, if you try it and you fail. There's a marker that keeps track of the number of failed calls for surrender for you. And that becomes a negative modifier for further calls for surrender. So if you go to a castle and you ask it to surrender and it doesn't surrender, um, then the next castle you try to do that to is less likely to surrender to you because they're like, well, shit, that other castle didn't surrender to you. Why would we? So <laughs> and it also impacts the, their decision whether there's an enemy army nearby so if I'm I'm Christian and I'm trying to call for surrender on a Muslim castle, if there's a Muslim army within a, a move of that castle that's at least half my strength, they're less likely to surrender also because they say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's a relief force potentially nearby. Yeah, I think that's one of the really big things about any sort of um, war game in particular is that the DRMs are sort of the make or break for things because that's where you get that level of, like, plausibility where you look at it and you think, well, these better make good logical sense or that suspension of disbelief is just gone. Um, so that's really cool that they've thought through some relatively simple things to make um, the sieges and then as well um, the likelihood of surrender. Um, it, it's something that's feels like it comes out of a textbook or feels like it comes out of a, a narrative that would be about the time. So that, that's very cool to hear. Right, and, and I think it's a good design choice, too, because honestly, if they don't make any kind of penalty for it, um, well, shit, everybody would just call. Why wouldn't you call for it? <laughs> right. You know, but of you just suffer this consequence where, you know, if you're gonna, your leader gets out there and threatens the castle every time, then, then it has less of an impact each time he does it. 
so so once you call for surrender, if there's no surrender, then you have to you try to blockade the castle. And uh, blockading, I think, allows you to like try to starve them, or uh, or perhaps uh, I think it's basically a starvation thing for blockading. I don't I don't haven't had too many situations where blockading was really critical for me. Um, but then once you're done with that, you're basically besieging the castle. Then on your next activation, you can decide to do what's called a siege event, and you can basically play siege cards. Every card you have in your hand of seven cards usually has a siege event that says basically whether it's an attacker or a defender action and how much manpower it requires to do that action. So you might build siege towers, which reduces the enemy's RF by three, so resistance factor by three. They might start at six, now they're down to three, but it requires two manpower to, to do that one. Well, that's the number of full-strength units that you have in the siege. So if you had six units, now you only have four manpower left. The defender then plays Greek fire, which burns your siege towers down, which eliminates them. Then you play battering ram. Well, that costs another manpower. So it's this back and forth play between the siege events as you were. And some siege events let you play them and then say immediately draw another card. But some don't. So as you play the siege card, now you have one less card that you could have used for ops or, or an event. So you're constantly looking at your hand like, Oh, do I want to play this for a siege event, or do I want to, you know? So then, um, once you've played all the siege events, you've maybe you've got the resistance factor down to where you want it. At that point, you can then decide if you want to assault the castle. And it's basically run like a combat. Defender gets a DRM bonus for the combat, but uh, and you're shifted. Uh, you you suffer shifts in column strength against you based on your uh, how much resistance is left in the castle. So, so castles last sieges can last a long time. When I go over some of the games that we played, you're going to hear uh, there's been sieges I ran where I gave up on the siege because it had become hopeless. And also, when you assault and you don't get them, their resistance factor goes up. So then you have a bigger shift. And, and if you ever don't have a card to play for a siege event, there's something called Fortunes of War. Like, if you don't like your particular siege event, you just pull a random siege event, it applies, and then you can assault. So, Very good. So, let me go over the, the games I played. The uh, first Kingdom of Heaven game I played was with my buddy Greg. Uh, we did the first Crusade. Uh, Greg pulled the good harvest card early, which basically reduced the amount of attrition that, that his Christians would suffer. Oh, and I played the Muslims in all these hmm. games, so... But I had a bunch of cards that would send Crusaders home. So, like, one card I played on them was, like, Trouble in Europe. A, a Crusader leader and three Crusader units are removed from the game. And and there's a bunch of cards like that because in the Crusades, like, they would be getting ready for a battle or fighting a siege, and, like, one of the guys would get a message and be like, oh, I have to go back to France. There's trouble. My wife's pregnant, and I haven't been home in ten months. Right, and they're like, well, what about Jerusalem? We're going to be like, yeah, I got to go. Sorry. He's like, no, really, we're about, seriously, we're literally about to fight. They're like, no, can't stay. So, <laughs> so I did that so many times to Greg that by the time he was done, he basically didn't have enough Crusaders <coughs> to really do much to me anymore. Because he'd sent a small army off, and I basically reduced that army so much. <coughs> so I think that one was a Muslim win, if I remember correctly. Then we went and got some beer and food, and then we came back. And the great thing, too, about the first Crusade scenario is it's like a two-and-a-half-hour scenario. Oh, that's perfect. The first time we played. 
Yeah, that's great. So in the second one, uh, I tried to, there's this thing called shadowing where the Christians move towards you. Cavalry armies are very good at it. Uh, you, you basically withdraw from, avoid battle and then you can shadow along the Christian army. And what you're doing is you're basically harassing them as they move. So they, at the end of the movement, have to take an attrition roll, and attrition rolls are based on the size of their army. But if you're shadowing them, it's the size of their army plus the size of your army that they pay the attrition for. Hmm. So I was like, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to do that because that sounds very, you know, Muslim-y in that period, you know, to be killing their guys who are trying to go get water and stuff and as they're moving. Um Unfortunately, uh, all the Muslim leaders in the First Crusade suck dog balls, and uh, I was not able to avoid battle, and Greg just destroyed the Muslim army, and uh, so then I couldn't shadow him at all. He, he had this card that was called Cow Castles, where when he wins a big victory, he then places plays the card, and three of my castles become his castles. Oh, jeez. Which was devastating. Um and then, so then my army's gone, so then he marched to Aleppo and Antioch, which are two major victory point cities, and called for surrender to both of them, and they both fucking surrendered to him. So that was a complete disaster. And so I learned from that lesson, I said, well, I lost my army. So the problem was my army wasn't around to kind of boost the confidence of, of the cities. So maybe if I keep my army in existence instead of risking it in battle... Uh, I can support the city so they won't surrender and will have to besiege them. Okay. So in my third game, I played Lucas. Held my army, my Muslim army back more. The Christians again came out through Asia Minor. They besieged both Antioch and Aleppo again, but I just barely held on, and by the end of the game, Lucas was not able to take either city. So that was good. And then in the fourth game, Lucas and I played the Second Crusade. Uh, Second Crusade is interesting in that... uh it basically, the, if the Muslims don't have six victory points by turn four, uh, it's an auto victory for the Christians. If mm-hmm. they have six victory points, then the second crusade shows up. Ouch. So I captured Edessa right away as the Muslims, and then I was basically, so I had my six victory points I needed after turn one, and I was kind of staring at a bunch of like Latin Frank forces that were very small, so I got cocky and built up a really big Muslim army, tried to besiege Antioch, Failed. I had to actually give up that siege. Then I tried to besiege Aleppo. Failed <coughs> that one. And then Lucas, at the end of turn four, that fucking bastard had a three ops card in his back pocket on the last match. <laughs> played it, recaptured Edessa on a surrender, and then because I had less than six victory points, it was an auto win. Nice. And no crusade ever showed up. <laughs> so. But that's the kind of action that happens in these... and. Each crusade is very different. One of the things I really love about the game is uh, there's a deck of standard cards, but then there's also a deck of crusade spe- scenario-specific cards, about five or six cards per scenario, and you just sort them in. So each game is going to be different with each scenario because the deck is actually different. And uh, I, I really I really like that. I also like how the rules work. Like in the first crusade, the first crusade was traditionally crusade where the 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 Christian knights, basically, lords basically showed up, and the Muslims were kind of surprised. They really were having a lot of internal problems, so they weren't really prepared for the for the Frankish, the Franks, the French knights to show up. Um, but the French knights were kind of out for their own interest. So there's a rule in the first scenario where if you capture a city, 
one of the leaders from the Crusaders has to stay there for the rest of the game. Because they would be like, oh yeah, okay, I got Odessa now, well, good luck, guys, I kind of have my little thief here. And they're like, no, no, we're still going. They're like, no, I'm good, I got my stuff. <laughs> I'm not going any further. <laughs> and so that's kind of a cool rule. The guy who made the game, I, I've been reading the history of the Crusades, uh, I think by Runciman, I think is his name, and uh, this guy who designed this game understands the mm-hmm. Crusades, flavor. This is one of these uh, CGG games where the cards add something to the game. Um, they don't become this weird thing where you're just kind of waiting around for to see which cards are being played. Uh, the events really force you to make a lot of uh, tough decisions, but they also really make you feel like you're you're making the decisions that the leaders at the time had. So uh, I think it's just fantastic as far as the flavor and uh, really conveying the feel for the Crusades yeah. and, and giving you so much fun during each Crusade, so very different from the other. So that's it. So very nice. So what's your rating for this? I mean, it sounds like pretty positive. Yeah, I would say, you know, honestly, I would say considering it's a Crusades game, I would, I'm actually going to give this game a 10. Wow. What? I think it hits all the right... right. I think it hits all the right points. On It's absolutely an excellent game. I don't see any issues with it at all. Um, you know, my, my experience with card-driven games is that generally in the beginning you play and you get you play with somebody and you don't know what the cards are, so you might get fucked mm-hmm. over because your buddy has a card that screws you. Uh, and then in the middle of the game you kind of hit a sweet spot with them because you kind of know the cards and the play a little bit better. You've learned the decks. And then at the end, after you've been playing for a while, then you guys have memorized the cards, and basically the game isn't as fun anymore. And this is with some, but, you know, the game experience changes as the game goes on, because as you learn the deck, uh, this game, I felt like it was, it's, I think it's one of the best CGGs I've played, and it's, I wish the guy would design more stuff for, like, maybe the Hundred Years' War or other medieval periods, but... Um, I just don't know. Maybe it's, it took him so long to make this one that that's never going to happen. So I would give it 10, 10 for quality. And uh, I would say it's probably four or five beers, four or five beers probably. So All right. that's it. Hmm. So I recommend it. Apparently. That was a lot of talking about <laughs> it. I think that was a good, I think that was a better rundown than, than almost anybody else has, has presented on the game though, so, very good. Well, Alright. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked about the sieges because, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of run through, like, I try to just get the, the table of contents and go through them, but, but yeah, that's interesting. Okay, cool. So, what about you guys? You guys got a game you want to reveal? Jason? Do you have picket duty? I do have picket duty. Um, I don't know how much I can say about it. Keith, I know you like the... I don't know if you like B29, but you like B17, right? I do like B17, yeah. So, I played B29, um, and I didn't really care for it. It was a little too deterministic and too repetitive for me. I haven't played B17, but B29... B17 is the same thing. You just... I mean, you just look... You just basically know what chart to pull out, Mm -hmm. and then you roll dice, and then you do what the chart says. There's so very, very, very little opportunity for choice... Um, however, if you're into a game where you're like, you know what, I just want to throw some dice and drink and, you know, have an opportunity just to see what happens, boy, they play really quickly, it's really easy, and 
you know, the game kind of plays itself and you're along for the ride, which for B-17 hits the right mix of things. If you're in the right mood for that kind of game, man, it's just a lot of fun to sit there and do that. And if you're flying, you know, as a part of a virtual squadron like they have on some of the BGG forums, it can just be a heck of a lot of fun to do that. So um, that's one thing that brings it. But you're right. It is really just... Okay, I'm gonna roll a die and look at this chart and see what happens. So, so, so that's yeah. what B29 was for me, and and I couldn't. I was in a place where that's not really what I was looking for. I wanted to engage a little bit more, um, so I ended up trading B29 away. But um, Legion War Games, who I love, I think I've talked about ad nauseum. Um, they had B or not B20 something. Uh, they had picket duty charging pretty soon. And I had the Hunters from GMT on my P500 list for about two years. Um, and it got to, I think, in November. And Legion said, hey, you know, we're going to print this game pretty soon. If you're if you're going to pre-order, now's the time. Um, and I think GMT at the time was still up in the air when the Hunters was going to come out. So I pulled my Hunters pre-order and went ahead and pre-ordered uh, Picket Duty. Knowing... For shame. <laughs> well... <laughs> probably for shame. Um, I, I could only get one game. I know I can probably go to two of the three game stores in town and, and find the Hunters because it's GMT. They're going to have it around. Um, Legion, they're a little bit harder to find. Um, Definitely. And I, I do like to support them. But if I had thought, oh, this is Steve Dixon, it's B29, maybe this isn't the game I'm wanting. Um, but I, I, I went for it anyway. Um, it's, there are definitely more decisions to make than B29. So run down really quickly what, if for people who aren't familiar with, um, with the game, run down real quickly what the topic for is. Picket for Duty? It. So, yeah. <clears throat> Picket Duty is, um, in 1945, the U.S. Navy sent destroyers out to kind of, um, be a, f- Scouts, not really scouts, but more of a fence for the invading fleet um, to protect against kamikaze. So they they would set up radar uh, and kind of um, were baiting kamikazes to attack them. So you're alone in the middle of the ocean on a destroyer by yourself trying to defend your little destroyer against waves and waves and waves of kamikazes. So this is Okinawa. And this would have been part of a carrier battle group. They would have right. been that outer ring of the carrier battle right. group, right? So before kamikazes got in to do some damage against carrier groups or troop transports or anything like that, attack um, these this small was ships that outer line, right? Considered expendable, right? And that really speaks to me. I like the Pacific Front. Um, I like that kind of late war aspect. Of World War Two, when I'm playing a World War Two game, I, I like the late war, um, probably because it's more American centric, um, which I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> America. America. So I, I get the game, and it's absolutely beautiful. The map is huge and luscious. Um, it's laid out in a in a way that luscious. that really makes sense. Um, there's a yeah, yeah. Let's explore that. What what exactly does luscious? luscious mean? The, the the components <laughs> feel nice. The map um, almost mm, talk about feel nice plastic. What are you doing with this it's, game? It's 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 luscious. It's Legion. Hey, man. you they, keep your hands off that Dave they, counter. They treat me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the Dave, it does counter. Have a Dave counter. 
and I was <laughs> first one you try to shoot down every time. <laughs> the Dave counter and I had a had a rendezvous. Um, the, below decks. <laughs> before there was Obviously. a fire on the decks, we went below. Oh, there was a fire below the decks. <laughs> um, so it's a destroyer, kind of the bottom half of the map with attack vectors. The top half of the map is just um, charts, not charts, but uh, tracks, keeping track of what's going on on the ship. I open the rules and sit down to read them, and it, it, they make enough sense. Um, on my first read through, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I sit down to read it. That's a sterling recommendation, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, well, that's good. My you? first read through, <laughs> they made enough enough sense. They made they enough made enough sense. sense. Well, especially after Guns of Gettysburg and some of these other games, enough sense is, is enough for me. Fair enough. You're right. I'll go into that. <laughs> um, but then I sit down to play, and some of the things during setup aren't quite as black and white as maybe they should be. I, I was able to play the game though, and that's for me really that's all that matters. If I can. If there's enough information that I can play it, I'm not going to really complain about it. Like, what's an example of not being able to play it? Yeah, no, you said they're not. They're, they're you know, you, um, there you, are a couple chart, not charts. I keep saying charts. Uh, there's a couple tracks that aren't addressed in setup um, for modifiers on die rolls, um, different radars that it doesn't say where the counter for this goes, things like that. So there are counters okay. unaccounted for in the setup. Which is fine. Um, I didn't run into anything where that was game changing or game stopping. But the intro scenario, um, and, and it's very upfront. I, when I play games with scenarios, I play scenario one first. So scenario one is the end is near June 7th, 1945. Uh, and you're assigned to picket station one, which it's on the map as a picket station. You play one phase. So the typical game, uh, each turn is three phases. It's morning, noon, and night. Uh, and, and you play through that turn and then you go to the next turn. Each scenario has a certain number of turns. However, this intro scenario is supposed to just teach you how to play the game. And it's one phase. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, you, you set up and, and you basically just walk through the tables. You start at the beginning. Um, now, now, Jason, let me stop you for a second and ask a question. Okay. I, I saw you'd done a video of the game. I did. Now, there's a map of a ship, and it looked like there were counters on your ship. Yep. Are those like guns? Yes. So there are, there are guns on the ship that you can uh, assign to the planes that are attacking. Uh, surrounding the ships, there are attack vectors that, that the... The kamikazes are going to come from, uh, there's an attack vector and then a low, medium, and a high attack vector. Now, are you keeping track of, like, your crew and are you assigning crew and stuff? Or? Um, there, there's crew that you can assign. <clears throat> I didn't run into the, um, using them very much. Uh, so the crew kind of, there's a commander, there's repair crews, there's communications officers, um, because I guess what I'm wondering is, you, you've got a ship, and the map is the ship. So mm -hmm. obviously you're not moving the ship around. Um, what do you have, besides rolling on a bunch of tables and being like, it's a choose-your-own-adventure, mm -hmm. like go to page 33, four kamikazes mm -hmm. attack you, uh, what control do you have as the player over what decisions do you make as far as 
besides I'm going to shoot this gun at that guy and I'm going to shoot that gun at that guy. Not much. You, okay. you can... Um, the, the crew pretty much starts in designated places. There's a couple um, officers that you can put in one of two places, um, but the the commander is always in in the bridge um the gunnery officer is always in a specific place and then there are repair crews one two and three that are uh aft midship and port or i don't know if those are the right words i wasn't in the navy but um so there's not very much choice in in that kind of thing it's like keith said it's you're playing through what's happening to you you do make decisions about where you're attacking and then when you do get attacked you have to repair certain things and you'll make decisions there about what gets the focus on the repair but you're not getting really to to pick where you're attacking or get to pick even where your ship goes your ship's going to kind of follow a course um so my first game i set it up and you see kind of how much support you have um, from the different the different things. That, uh, when you're playing the basic game, the weather's always clear. So even one of the choices there, or not a choice, but one of the roles there is taken. So you, you, you go through all these tables, you're rolling dice. You get to um, where you're finally rolling to see how many planes are attacking you. So I roll on that, and then that takes you to another table. You roll on that. No planes. No planes attack. Okay, well, that's for the whole phase. So game one, <laughs> scenario job, one. That was exciting. You're one and I all. won. <laughs> Hooray. Like, okay. Now you go on to scenario so two. So <laughs> I start over. Like, well, this is supposed to teach me how to play the game, so I want to actually be attacked. So let me start all over, erase everything on my little pencil sheets, Go again. No attacks. Like, sweet. <laughs> well, I'll just roll again. No attacks. So there are only two... No, there's three no attacks on a roll of 2d6. Um, but I hit that three times in a row. Like, okay, whatever. Um, but you could roll it and be like, fuck that, I'm going to have to... I did that. Just the second time it. I rolled again and I got no attacks again. I said, okay, this scenario one's not meant to be. I'm going to... Let's restart. Go to scenario two. Scenario two, instead of being one phase, is one turn... Um, so I finally got some attacks on scenario two, uh, the attack one, I got no attacks, attack two, I got an attack, but as you're pulling, so then it tells you how many kamikazes to pull out of this bag and the kamikaze chits are beautiful. They're like one inch square chits, um, that you're supposed to pull out of a coffee mug. If you were to do that, um... I'm not sure what size coffee mug that would take, but I'd put them in a bag. Um, I mean, that's like a friend's cappuccino kind of kind of mug. It sounds like you're actually caressing the bag right now. I am. There's a bag also <laughs> luscious. There's a, no, it's just a plastic bag. It's a luscious plastic. The the bag I was pulling out of was luscious. Um, does it glisten? It when you it pull was, things out of it. It was velvety and smooth and wow. wonderful. Mm. Dave very nice. very tactile. Uh, there are a couple, and they're they're interspersed. They got fondled. Uh, so as you're pulling kamikazes out of the bag, there are chits that say attack ends, which means no attack happens. 
even though I'm pulling eight kamikazes out of this bag, on number seven, I pull an attack ends, nothing happens. So that happened twice in a row. Well, that seems strange, because it seems like the bigger the attack, the more likely it might be that the attack that ends. That it should have. It, it does end, but it with nothing happening. Like, with don't, don't you think, okay, the seven that have been pulled should, already, should attack. But that doesn't happen. According to the rules, if an attack ends, shit is pulled, it ends. Well, now, wait a minute. So, one of the things about this game that I've been kind of looking at is that they're actually fully rewriting an entirely new version of these rules. I mean, is it just that the rules are flawed? I, or is it that their intent for the rules was flawed, and now they're going back and being like, well, let's rewrite this entire game and call it version 2.0. We'll use the same components, but we'll correct some of this kind of logical weirdness. I'm not, I'm not sure what their take is. Um, the rules, like I said, it, they were enough for me to play the game. There are a couple things that, that aren't very clear or aren't addressed, um, but they're not game-breaking. But the scenarios, to me, feel like they're not well thought out. Or that, okay, if you're here's the rule for this, but if you're playing scenario one, disregard this. Or here's a table for scenario one. Um, I think the scenarios need to be looked at. I think that the rules in general do need to be polished. I don't know if they're going to use these components for a different game or if they're just going to clarify what's already in the rules. Sure. I think there are some things that can be addressed and there are some variants on BGG um, that say like for the one phase scenario, ignore all attack ends and all no attack rolls and reroll, which is kind of what now, I did. And let me just make a quick comment. So Basically, then there's maybe there's a problem with playtesting the game. Yeah, I, I. I mean, it's a fucking solitaire game, right? So right. technically, you have twice as many playtesters. Right? <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> right? The owner's right. wife could playtest the game eight hours. Right. <laughs> you know, designer's yeah. wife could playtest. Just roll the dice and see what happens. Yeah. And and you're locked in a playtest dungeon. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you had fifty playtesters, now all fifty of them can playtest it. So I, I am looking forward to. The rules rewrite, um, and I'm okay with those kinds of things. Um, that that doesn't bother me. You know, I'm not going to get butt hurt that a game comes out and the rules aren't polished. I, I get it; these things happen. Um, but you know, there are some issues that need to be addressed. I will say, on game number five that I played when I was finally attacked and I finally got to play it, I had a lot of a lot of fun. And Keith, like you said, I I was along for the ride. Um, I got attacked. Hey, let me. Let me take care of this attack. Uh, second attack, I draw an attack ends. Nothing happens. Okay, whew, in the middle of this thing, I get a breather. I can address the the issues on the deck. Um, put out the fires. You know, get the get the engine back up again. Um, and it seems like the advanced game too adds a little bit to it that I didn't dive into because I like to start with the basic game. Um, but it has things like um, you can take on water, which will affect which guns you can point which way um, because yeah, if it's listing it, too much you don't want to fire uh, you know what I gotta against, rant about that I'm sorry I gotta interrupt you on this but that is that drives me nuts and it's something that I've seen more and more frequently and that is that games look like they're designed in whole 
mm-hmm. and then publishers get a hold of it, or somebody gets their ear, or it's a play tester, or whatever. And they need to. And they say, it. "Oh, by the way, all this cool stuff that actually really makes this a deep, enjoyable experience for people, where they have some buy-in and emotional connection to what's actually happening, gets carved up into this thing that's like either advanced game or optional rules, or this is for the campaign mm-hmm. only, or whatever it happens to be." And the reality is. Those rules are really a core part of the game. And, and they get shoved off into this corner, yeah. and what you're left with is this like weird beast that's missing an arm, or missing the punch, or missing the emotional connection. And quite honestly, I think it's kind of insulting to gamers that like you couldn't digest this extra you know page and a half of rules mm-hmm. after you read 20 pages. Come on. That, that's ridiculous. And, and if they... If you're right, if, if those additional parts should people should be part of the game, leave them in the basic game. Because if I see right. basic game, I'm thinking advanced game is advanced, and I want to experience the the drunk guy version first, uh, which is <laughs> usually how I'm sitting down to these things. Um, but if it's integral, like weather, it's a roll of a die. If, if it being foggy or being rainy is going to make it harder for me to shoot kamikazes down, that's fine. But well, and leave I, that I think, in the basic game. Well, and one of the key tactics in World War II at this time was to actually send out smaller ships to go and lay smoke screens mm-hmm. for the kamikazes mm-hmm. so they couldn't line up their right. dive bombs from, you know, 20 miles away. The whole goal was that it was difficult to spot these, and you had little time to actually go and shoot it. So right. that seems like a historical restriction that you shouldn't be like, oh, well, by the way, we're just going to ignore everything that actually happened to give you this kind of weirdly skewed base game yeah. than to give you something, that the big boy version of it. Yeah, and I think with a game like this, it's not like this is a game that's going to be generally a, a beginner war game. Guys aren't like, oh, uh, beginner war game's like, oh, maybe I'll try Battle of the Bulbs. Beginner Wargamer's not like, oh, Picket Duty, Destroyers yeah. on, in 1945? Yeah, that's what I want to try for my first Wargamer. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the rules rewrite, uh, and I will revisit it at that point. Um, for what it is, I, I did enjoy it, um, and knowing it was a similar system to B29, I, I liked it more than even I thought I would. But there are some... Burrs, I think, that need to be filed down a little bit. So besides the whole uh, attack ends thing, were there other rules problems? I didn't have that many. Um, a lot of the people on Board Game Geek do seem very <clears throat> vitriolic about the rules. I didn't have that many issues with them. Uh, I think I had two or three questions that I didn't really write down um, because I did... The first one was, um, I think, a radar counter that's not really addressed during setup. And maybe it's part of the advanced game, but it's not really addressed anywhere um, that I saw. And so I went to look for it and saw that they were doing a rules rewrite and just said, okay, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to, I want to play this game right now, so I'm going to play it. Um, so it, it played in, in a way that I was able to get through scenario two uh, twice, once not being attacked once and, and once actually getting to actually play the game. Um, but, you know, I think a couple people have said, you know, maybe that's what they're trying to show is you weren't always attacked. And, you know, Fuck I know that. from my experience in the military, game. We, we would go out and... It would be a game if you weren't attacked. I would be, Why would I would you be ever tense be like, for hey. 10 hours on gunner duty and not get attacked. <laughs> and, yeah. 
Yeah, the, the next here's, page is here's not... the game about lunch in the right. Western front of World War II. Nobody wants to play that game. Yeah, yeah we're below decks that. peeling potatoes for this turn. <laughs> right. yeah. I was eating dust That game's for 10 just hours. called real life. It's yeah. not a game. And now I have to go clean my gun. Right, you're playing picket duty because you want to be attacked I want by to be a attacked by kamikazes and I want to shoot them down. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's just that seems totally ridiculous, and I'm really disappointed because uh, my grandfather was actually on a ship at Okinawa, and uh, he was on a on a heavy cruiser. And if ships made it past that, or if planes made it past that picket line, that was their duty was to be in a little closer and doing that because they were usually on shore bombardment mm-hmm. duty. So, you know, I think. <laughs> I had really hoped that this was going to get a strong recommendation for you. You were going to say, hey, this was really great, and this is why, and these are some of the things that you had to do. You know, there's so many cool things they could have brought into this game. One of the things that um, my grandfather saved uh, and I have from from his World War II time is they used to give those guys packs of playing cards, and they weren't like traditional playing cards. They were silhouettes of enemy Mm -hmm. and American planes and allied planes, and it was just blank silhouettes. And they would do, uh, when they were just cruising, it was time for them to go into a dark room and they'd shoot those things up on a screen and gunners would have to be able to identify them instantly. Right. So I think probably smart American pilots would make sure those were well distributed throughout the fleet. Yeah, no kidding, right? (laughs) So that's one of those deals where it's like, you know, that component of their real-life training could have been brought into the solitaire game in a way that, one, would have been really a neat historical experience for people to have. Two, would have been relatively cheap to print a pack of cards off. I mean, Arts Cow, you get stuff shipped from Arts Cow from China for like 20 bucks. And then number three, it adds another layer to that game where you have this identification segment where you have planes flying out to meet these because it wasn't just a destroyer trying to deal with this. No, there, so I think there that's are planes. It's there, just fails. Yeah, there, that is represented. It's 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 abstracted out. It's a counter that you can add to your to your attack. Um, I will say. Only playing the basic game, maybe some of that stuff is incorporated into the advanced game. But if if that's the case, I think it shouldn't be pulled out or don't present two types of play. Just here's how you play this game. It's right. You know, it's twenty pages of rules, and you're following along no matter what. It's one of those games that it's meant to follow along. I'm reading setup. I'm reading phase one. Okay, and then I'm rolling on the phase one charts. So I'm going to be following along anyway. Don't don't take depth out of the rules, you know, for the sake of of the players. No one's memorizing these things because it's right. meant or to you, be or played. You just created a game that people skip and just go right to the main game. So yeah, and maybe that's what I need to do, um, and that's probably what I will do once these version two rules, whatever they are, get. Well, they only got to the proofreader on the seventeenth, so. You know, you're looking at, so that's only 10 days with the proofreader to get a, get a feel for how they're working. He's probably going to need, you know, more time than that to make yeah. sure that the updated rules actually meet what the player expectations are now. Sure. And the level of silence for the last two and a half weeks about the game is something that players are just going to get more and more ramped up about and put some probably pretty unrealistic expectations on what those new rules are going to come back looking like. So yeah. it's really a no win for them unless they can shore up you know, the the logical inconsistencies and address some of the information gaps that are in it. Hopefully, hopefully. I think Legion tries to do a good job of, of doing that, and I, I hope they do for this. Um, 
you know, I wish them the best on, on this game. But it wasn't really what I was looking for. Um, I'll probably have to go out and buy the Hunters now, um, which... You make it sound so painful. You make it sound I'm so painful. I'm trying to not buy games. <laughs> so It's a really cheap game. That that thing is... like that, 35 40 bucks. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. cheap considering. Yeah, but that's a soldering iron. I'm trying to buy a soldering iron, too. Well, too many hobbies. That sounds like a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, I would that say that's a problem. Maybe that's where the issue is. <laughs> so, Keith, you got any you got any uh, games you want to review? Your, your uh, sales game? Sure. So I can talk a little bit about Sales of Glory. I, I had hoped to get over to my friend Jared's place and play that face to face with him, and uh, unfortunately, life got in the way there. Um, but I can talk more intelligently probably about um, Rebel Raiders on the High Seas. Okay. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked about that one before. Is nope. that one that? It's one I almost bought. Yeah, it looks interesting. All right, so uh, hmm, uh, Rebel Raiders on the High Seas, Fred Schachter. Here's the game. This is the game in a nutshell. If you've ever wanted to try to take over the Union Anaconda strategy, Rebel Raiders on the High Seas is the game that lets you do that. Okay. So the whole goal of that game, if you are on the Union side, is to put blockades all around the United States and take control of Mississippi. Okay? Real simple, up front, great. As the Confederates, what you're trying to do is build up enough treasure to be able to continue your war efforts and build up enough coastal defenses so that key port cities aren't taken and you can defend the Mississippi uh, with while maintaining your two armories in Atlanta and Richmond. Um, so I think when you look at it from a historical context, the idea is really phenomenal, right? You have this cool setup where you have these really dashing and daring uh, blockade runners who are going to Europe where they have uh, trading partners and friends. Um, you have... Uh, them going into the Caribbean and into um, Latin America to do raiding. They go into the African whaling waters and do raiding um, to earn money, right? So they do commerce raiding around the world, which is kind of a neat concept for how the Confederates might fund what they do. Okay. However, they tried to make a naval game, and then <laughs> the, oh, I should I should mention this is a Fred Schachter design. Um, the game is effectively a naval game, but then there's this really weird overland component in which the Union has all of the initiative and all of the ability to be successful. And the way that that tide and ebb and flow of the Civil War is handled is how many combat dice the Union ever gets throughout its course of combat. So it starts off with like one or two combat dice and eventually it grows to have like just an incredible number of combat dice by the time they get to 1864. Oh, so the game also plays the Union armies, the the land war? Yeah, effectively, but there's no like counters for it. You just take control of land and then you can attack the next point to point location in that area. Okay. So for example, Washington DC and Richmond are only two hexes away. Well, what ends up happening is that you really have to defend uh, Richmond well because uh, if the Union takes it, you lose out on getting coastal batteries, which are some of your only effective ways to counter 
the vastly superior numbers of the Union Navy and some of the advantages that they get as the game you know moves on. And is that, that's why, because the, the cannon works are there in Richmond or something? Right. So they have industrial capacity in two cities. They have industrial capacity in Richmond and they have con- industrial capacity in Atlanta. Okay. Um, so they get to do it in that way. Um, what <laughs> is kind of interesting about the game is that it's split up into basically 12 turns. And across those 12 turns, you have three distinct phases of the game. And they're really scripted. They they look like they're not scripted, but it's really scripted. The first four turns of that game are um, the Confederacy with basically a free-for-all. They can go wherever they need to. They can easily evade Union patrols. The Union hasn't built its Navy up to the point where every single city is blockaded yet. They can move with near impunity and bring goods from Europe back to the United States and then convert those into victory points, which are the currency through which the Confederates purchase things like ships or purchase ironclads or purchase uh, the ability to have an overland counterattack. Those are the kinds of things they can do. But all of those, the overland in particular, is prohibitively expensive. It costs 20 victory points. And to earn 20 victory points, you have to send 10 ships to Europe and back with goods, right. which is like a couple turns each time, and you have to roll well not to be detected. So getting 20 victory points to burn on something like an overland counterattack mm-hmm. is like virtually impossible. Now, are those victory points that otherwise you would have been to bank towards a victory? Right, but victory is only measured on the Union side of the game. Okay. And basically for the Union to win... They have to control the Mississippi, and they have to have 16 cities, I think it is, 16, you know, land spaces taken, uh, and they have to have, like, Richmond and Atlanta. Well, the overland component at the end of the game, they're able to start taking, like, two or three land spaces pretty much guaranteed unless they roll terribly. Um, they can pretty much take them guaranteed. So you have that first four turns as the Confederates to build up before the juggernaut starts to come awake. Then you have four turns where it's pretty evenly matched. The the Union is starting to put a lot of ships in the eastern seaboard, uh, and they start to move into maybe Florida and start to focus a little bit, um, perhaps, uh, down in the Mississippi Delta. But you can still kind of move your commerce. The last four turns, your commerce, your ability to move the commerce is, is virtually dead. Um, so whatever victory points you have after about six or seven turns into the game, that's it. You're done. So it's this race to build things up and then wait as the union dictates the flow of play. But to throw a wrench into that, there are cards. And there's a Confederate deck and a union deck. And what the cards offer is... Uh, famous personalities and they offer uh, ships that get converted and a, a small selection of events that do things like um, one of them, for example, put a bunch of uh, cargo counters in, in the West Indies, which is great for the Confederacy because it's so much closer than having to go to Europe to go and pick those up. Okay, But if you don't get that early on, 
if you get that on like the eleventh turn of the game, who cares? I mean, that's useless. Mm-hmm. So um, you have individual ship counters that run you, the blockade. Yes, and there's a limit, and the counter limit is the actual limit of the number that you can produce. So you don't produce them all that quickly, and where you produce them uh, can make it more complicated to get them immediately into being able to produce victory points for you, which is... In in the later part of the game, do you have a problem where you have your ships, but they can't safely make it through the blockade any longer? Right, exactly. So basically what happens is you get into the later part of the game and the Union has already put out, the way that it works is there are open sea spaces, which are like big area movement spaces. Mm-hmm. There are uh, overland spaces, which are all connected in a traditional point-to-point system. And then there are blockade spaces, and there's one of each connected to a port space. So for you to get out of port, you have to go through a blockade, through an open sea before you get to the first open sea space that's actually not touching a part of the continental United States. Now, once you get out into sea like that, it's a lot easier for you to move around and do what you need to do, but you're still suffering just a ton of die rolls. So what happens is there are uh, searches that happen in the blockade spaces. Well, as soon as there are multiple U.S. or multiple Union ships that can search, they start rolling just a ton of dice. And what's more is they can spend some of their activities to add die roll modifiers, and then it's just an opposed die roll. Hmm. So if you're rolling one and they're getting a plus two on their opposed die roll for searching, they're going to find you. And when they find you... There's no real combat that happens with a blockade runner. You just you just sink and you lose all the cargo with it, and you've lost building out on that uh, that blockade runner. Now your raiders can fight in combat, but they're so inferior to the uh, Union ships that generally you're going to lose when you get into it. I think in in the games that I've played, it, it's really just like a handful of times you're going to win. And honestly, that feels pretty realistic to me. I don't think anybody's like writing the history of how wonderful the Confederate Navy was during the mm-hmm. Civil War. That book just doesn't really exist, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know. That, that, that's kind of the weird thing about the game. Like, okay, like there's no way the Confederate Navy was ever going to win the war for the Confederacy. So why design a game about it? Yeah, so it's, and that's why I said, if you think about the game in terms of the Union player trying to enact the Anaconda plan versus the Confederate player trying to just keep their cause alive through economic means, then it makes more sense. It's really just like a war game about the economy of the southern states during the Civil War because ultimately everything runs off of that. Mm The only real combat that happens that is interesting combat in the game is when a fleet builds up outside of a port city. So, for example, outside of uh, Richmond, which is a port city in this game, uh, you could have a bunch of ironclads defending it. You could have ironclads attacking it, along with gun gunboats and uh, cutters, Navy cutters, and uh, some shore batteries. Well, what's kind of neat is that you can do some screening on both sides. So the placement of your ships when you get into the tactical level of combat in the game 
is somewhat interesting, but then again, it's not all that interesting because all you end up doing is, for example, a gunboat gets, uh, there's a 50% chance you're going to sink it. And it's like one hit to sink. So the way that the game treats individual ships in the Navy is that you play a card that for a combat converts it over to a named ship that may have had an illustrious career uh, during the Civil War where perhaps they ignore the first damage. Or if they're damaged, if you roll a five or a six, you get to ignore that damage. Or they get to roll an extra die. Or uh, a naval command like Farragut maybe gets to, you know, allow you to make an additional attack or something like that. So they're modifiers, but what the game boils down to when you get about halfway through it, you start to reflect on the way that you played the game and where you're at. And what becomes apparent is that the game is solvable. Mm. And Fred Schachter has actually admitted that the game is solvable if you play it with the default scenario. And sure, there are some random events throughout it, and obviously the cards had some impact on the game, but there is a right and a wrong thing to do in these games, and if you do the right thing as the Union, there is literally no chance to even have this game be fun for the Confederate player. Because you can start to clamp things down earlier in the game just by throwing ships into those blockade zones and rolling. Because ultimately, you've got these, what amounts to 50-50 chances to do stuff. Well, you know what? <laughs> I would go to Vegas on those odds right. any day. So nobody wants to play a game where you've got these weird 50-50 odds and you can pretty much go through and solve what's going to happen. I think pairing it with Iron and Oak, which I've not done yet, is one way to help alleviate that because then there's you at least feel like there's some tactical engagement that goes on in the ship battles. But even with that, your position in the Overland game is important. And by turn five or six, you're at such a a dice-rolling deficit you're never going to make that happen right. So I, I just I don't think the game's that great. Um, I, I might give it another play, but I just really don't feel like it lived up to all the hype that it had ahead of time. The rule book is a disaster. You know, in places, like Bowen Simmons is on one end of the spectrum for saying, like, you know, putting 16 different rules into a single sentence mm-hmm. Fred Schachter is on the other end of that, where he'll write 16 sentences about a single rule, and they don't all make sense. They're not all internally consistent. So you're left kind of scratching your head trying to figure out what the heck is going on with it. So the rule book's a bit of a mess. Obviously, it, if you read the rule book and you play through it really literally, and, and i got to give a lot of credit to, to my friend Jared, you know, he did a great job of tearing that thing apart before we sat down to play it, and I felt like we played well but even with that, there you know there are just mistakes that you make, and when we look back in the rulebook, we're like, well, this is why we thought that, and it's not clear. So, um, you, I, I would this game maybe on a good day, I'd give it a like a six. I think it's probably. I'm not, I don't know if I can rate this in in beers. I'll try. I'll do it for you guys. I'll rate it in beers. I'm gonna say you can play this game after you've had five or six beers, because um, again. It seems more complex than it actually is, and the rules make it seem far more complex, but at its heart, it's just rolling a crap ton of dice 
trying to figure out whether you found each other or not when it's so obvious that if you were trying to come out of the port at Baltimore, it wouldn't be a whole hell of a big deal to try to figure out if there was a ship leaving Baltimore. I mean, some of these ports, the geography of the port isn't taken into account even a little bit. So, you know, it, it, I didn't quite understand why things were done this way. I get it's a game. I get that you have to abstract some things to make it playable. But when the game's not playable and the thing is 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 so abstracted that you kind of question the reality of it and you wonder about the topic matter, you know, that that just doesn't strike me as a as a great game. So Well Keith, Keith, let me ask you real quick. So by you saying that, are you telling me that certain there's no distinction between whether certain ports were harder or easier to blockade? Right. That's exactly the truth. Well, and the same for assault too. So if if a port was really like narrow Wilmington, to get into Wilmington was famously a difficult area to blockade. Right. Because exactly, because you had Fort Fisher sitting out there, you had all kinds of stuff that were blockading and leading into that that uh, that port, and that was why it was so popular for blockade runners. But in this game, it's the same as blockading, you know, anywhere on the Florida Keys or anywhere in Southern Florida, Miami. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. There's no distinction whatsoever. Yeah, that seems strange for a game that's about blockade running. Yeah, right. And that's why I said earlier, if you think about where games live and die. When it gets right down to it, if you have two well-designed games, if you look at the die roll modifiers, nine times out of ten, one game's going to have more meaningful die roll modifiers where you look at it and you go, wow, that was really smart to handle it that way because that encompasses these four or five things that I was thinking about. Well, how hard is it to come up with a die roll modifier for ports that are historically documented for this to be easier or harder to have dealt with? And the same along, you know, the Mississippi Delta. You know, what a mess to try to go and and move up, yet there was a fort down there that basically commanded the whole thing. So once the Union grabbed that fort at the start of the war, they had the, the mouth of the Mississippi pretty well dealt with. Right. So I, that's why I don't quite... <laughs> the game didn't hit with me. Um, I'll give Iron and Oak its own fresh chance to impress me or not impress me. Um, I might even play it alongside of Rebel Raiders and use it as that you know sub-game, like the mini-tactical game. Like a battle game? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, ultimately, it's still a flawed game generating the battles, and ultimately it's still a game that is... Even at its best day in Iron and Oak, it, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference whether you win or lose the battles in Iron and Oak. And mm-hmm. I love, I love naval war games, so that it's just disappointing as heck. Yeah. Right. Hmm. So, hey, Jason, did you give a rating for uh, Picket Duty? I'm, I'm gonna. Uh... <clears throat> beers. You could probably play this game with ten beers. I mean, because yeah, you're you're parts, following right? you're following charts hey, and tables. The game tells you where to go, right? Which can be a good thing. I, as far as a rating of the game, I'm gonna withhold until second version rules come out. Boo. <laughs> this. I mean, I just I, I didn't I didn't cognize the game enough in 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 that kind of way because I I knew that there were new so it's rules a four. coming out. So it's a four out of ten. Is that what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying. 
Keith, Jason, Jason is always the most diplomatic reviewer. And he gets the, the nastiest emails from game designers. <laughs> yeah. They don't even bother to email me. Yeah, yeah. I'll say one thing about Sales of Glory. Um, if you're playing anything less than the advanced game in Sales of Glory, please pack it up and sell it to somebody else. Because that game could that game could be anything with the basic and intermediate rules. I mean, it doesn't matter that there's ship models on your table. Just give up. Yeah. Play the advanced game or don't play it. Nice. Really. That's ridiculous. So are we going to have that for the next podcast, a full Sales of Glory uh, review? Absolutely. You know it. Well, guys, I got a victory tonight uh, I can talk about. Sure. Talk about another quick review. Uh, A victory denied is the second in the series from MMP after a victory lost. It's a uh, chit-pull game, so of course that's right in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I enjoy It's a Hex Encounter, uh, 1941 uh, campaign from Smolensk to Moscow. And uh, the the interesting thing about this game is it was actually taken over by Starkweather, the series, I think. So he did the design on it for the second. I think the first one was a Japanese designer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Starkweather was given uh, this one. And, you know, some people don't like some of Adam Starkweather's games. The ones I played, I Who? really enjoyed. You know, he's got some Nate, was it, War of the Suns. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't like his games? I will yeah, hunt them down. A lot of people didn't like War of the Suns. Yeah, War of the Suns took some hits. I think it's I think it's good. I also like it because I think he's really great with his designer's notes, where he really kind of opens up the the, the box and lets you see uh, his whole thought process and how he was designing. It's very frank, and I think that's good. I like seeing that kind of stuff from game designers. Like if I see twenty five pages of rules. Uh, yeah, give me two or three pages of designer's notes. I think that's that's worthwhile. Um, I'm also Facebook friends with him. So. <laughs> little liberal. That's like besties. And a, and a potential... No, he's a little liberal for me, but that's fine. <laughs> um, so uh, a victory denied... Basically, I bought the game because uh, I, I played a victory lost with Marshall. I liked it, and I didn't really have like a physical... Uh, good beginner's war game where if I wanted to have a guy come play a war game with me, it would kind of give him the whole feel with zones of control and retreats and, and some of the basics without getting too complicated. Like, I'm not going to play World at War or OCS or something like that with a guy who's just mm, starting GTS, the game. Yeah. yeah, or GTS even. GTS is too much too. So, uh, so I, I bought Victory Denied basically because I liked the Victory Lost and I thought I want something in my library in case a guy comes by and wants to actually play a game. So um, it's, I, I actually think that uh, uh, Starkweather did a good job. I think he actually improved on a victory lost. Uh, one of the advantages of victory denied is, frankly, it's available uh, yeah. in print. Um, it's a it's a chit-pull mechanism. So generally what happens is, is, and again, this is Barbarossa, so it's 1941. It's the German drive on Moscow. Um, the Germans have a couple command groups. And then the Soviets have a bunch of command groups based on their headquarters. So the Germans have uh, like Ninth Army, Second uh, Panzer Group, and Third Panzer Group. The changes that Starkweather made for this game, oh, I, could, I might as well just call him Adam because we are friends on Facebook. So uh, some of the changes, wow. he, some of the changes he made, uh, he got rid of the stupid railroad rule where uh, yeah. 
victory lost had a rule where reinforcements could just travel on a railroad as far as they wanted, as long as they didn't hit an enemy zone of control. So reinforcements would like ride like on the Disney monorail all the way past German units, all the way to the other side of the map, basically. Yes. <laughs> Nor yes, engage or any other guys are five miles away saying, what? what? Right, like, oh, but we're, they're out of our zone of control. Uh, so that's okay. Yeah, they, they drive in on some magical armored train that takes them to the back of your positions. Um, he also got rid of the Stavka chip. That would have been a good name for the podcast, by the way. Magical armored train. That's what yeah. we should have called it. Armored monorail. <laughs> So in, in a victory loss, there was a stop chip that the uh, the Russians would pull, the Soviets would pull, and it would activate every single unit, every single head, headquarters on the map. So it was basically a chance for the German player to go uh, have an appointment with his accountant or go mow the lawn, because it would take like an hour and a half for the Soviet player to finish the stop chip marker. So that one got rid of. He got rid of and, and now what he does is he's he's created an activation system where um, for most of the units, like the infantry units or any of the Soviets, if you activate a headquarters or you pull a Ninth Army chip, a headquarters activates, and then it, it can activate the units near it, and it activates any other headquarters that are within its command range, and then they can activate their combat units. So he created kind of a daisy chain activation sequence. Um, for the motorized units, what, what he did was, when you pull the second or third Panzer Group chips, they... They, the Panzer groups tend to just have, uh, like, I think third Panzer group has two core and, and the, the southern Panzer group second has three core. What they do is, as long as there's other units within their Panzer core within three hexes of them, they all activate. So the motorized German units activate differently from the infantry units. Did I explain that? Mm-hmm. Well enough? Okay. So and and that's a big change in the way the game used to work because it used to be traditionally a headquarters activation game, but now he's created these special uh, motorized activation chips for the German motorized units. There's a Guderian chip, which is cool, which I pretty much take every time as the German player because what it does is you pull it out of the cup and it trumps a Soviet chip and forces it back into the cup and then automatically activates a second Panzer Corps. So you can take it every time. Uh, it's definitely something you want to take. And there's also, for the Russians, there's a Timoshenko chip, which has a, a greater range and gives a combat bonus when it's active. So, uh, Yeah, that's pretty deadly, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's good. But, you know, for me as the Soviets, I tend to be a very defensive player, so I tend to fall back more or threaten flanks. So I don't do a whole lot of attacking until, especially in the south where Timoshenko is, it's risky, I think, to get too aggressive yeah. So uh, so those are some big changes he made, which I think are a huge improvement. But I still hear people say that they prefer victory lost over victory denied. Uh, I, I don't I don't agree. I think a victory denied is is uh, much better because of the changes Adam made. I think uh, it's it's a faster game because you don't have to wait around for the Stavka chip to to play through all the Soviets. It does reverse the roles a little bit, where you know. The, now the Germans are attacking in the beginning, the Soviets are defending, and then there's a little bit more counterattacking. But it's it's still a very strong push by the Germans all the way through the game. It's ten turns. At about the end of turn six, the German player actually rolls to see what his uh, objective is going to be. Mm-hmm. So if he rolls Hitler distracted, uh, then he doesn't have to take Moscow and 
and he uh, he loses a bunch of motorized units. But if he picks on, if gets onto Moscow or gets to select onto Moscow, then he basically wins automatically. He gets Moscow, but he pays more penalties for losing motorized units. So there are the objectives kind of change during the game, or or rather, you don't know what the end objective is going to be. You don't know what the end strategy is going to be. One of the cool things about the game too is it's got a bunch of little special rules and special chits in it. Uh, it's got a supply chip, a reinforcement chip, artillery, and air power that can be used. Uh, by the Germans, so there's an air power chip, and you basically have three Stuka markers that can give you chip, chip, chip or combat chips, and when you play the air power card, it allows you to get back one of your Stukas. There's an artillery chip for the Soviets that lets them fire artillery. Uh, reinforcement chip tells you when reinforcements are coming out, and the supply chip, when the supply chip comes out, there's a cool aspect where it's actually very hard to isolate enemy units because you have to surround them with zones of control, to isolate them, but the the Russian player each turn gets a certain number of out of supply markers that he can put on German motorized units, and that varies from turn to turn. So in turns three and four, it gets up to like six, but towards the end of the game, it's only two, and you can just drop them on them wherever they are. So it's a great way to really kind of slow down a German offensive. Some of the problems I had with the game... Uh, I thought it was a little weird that supply could be traced through any path. Like, basically, as long as you can find a, a line of hexes that goes back to a supply source, it doesn't matter whether they go through marsh over, like, like obstacles that probably wouldn't be supply lines, like roads, or you can basically keep them from being isolated. One of the other Isn't strength- that most war games, though? As yeah, long as you can trace back to where your supply is coming from. You're I just okay. thought it was weird that the supply line could technically go east towards Russia mm-hmm. and then go on a huge arc between other divisions and corps and army groups, Soviet army groups, and then off the map where there's no roads anywhere nearby. But maybe the, it's just the idea that being isolated might be more of a feeling for them, like they don't have a way to get out. Right. That's why they're, they're reduced. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, another, another strange thing was strategic movement. So um, I, I don't know how familiar the listeners are with the game, but basically what normally happens is uh, the game rates units. So a uh, unit will have a combat strength, and the unit has a movement capability. Motorized units have attack and defense strengths. Infantry units tend to just have one combat strength that applies for for uh, infantry or for, for attack and for defense. So one of the nice things about the... Uh, the uh, motorized units is they have a movement of 10 and you know infantry german infantry unit might have a movement of 5 or something like that well infantry units are allowed to do strategic movements so if they stay on roads the entire time and don't come next to an enemy and don't come next to a victory point city they can basically get triple movement on the road so a german infantry unit that moves 5 normally is capable of moving 15 hectares on the road but German motorized units can only move 10. And they are never allowed to uh, move strategically. So it was confusing to me that a German infantry division could move 15 hexes because it stayed on roads, but a German motorized unit that stays on roads could only move 10 hexes. And, okay, so yeah, when, Jeff and I were, when Jeff and I were talking, Jeff mentioned that Maybe the reason for that might be because maybe the tanks don't move as well. But the truth is, the real advantage of the German motorized formations was their infantry was motorized. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so, uh, and, and, you know, it's not an issue of half tracks or trucks. Really, most of the German Panzer Grenadiers weren't in half tracks. They were in trucks. Right. So it seemed a little strange to me that, that infantry could move so far. And in fact, it's even weirder when you look at Soviet infantry units, which are able to now, they normally move four, they can move 12 hexes on a road, and yet a German motorized division only moves 10. When at that period of the war in 41, the Soviets had like no trucks. So they're walking. Unless they have some jogging capability that, you know, some kind of super cardiovascular endurance. So that's weird. It's not a game breaker. It's just strange. No, it's not. Maybe you could house rule it. I mean, it might be, the problem might be that if you gave the German motorized units, uh, strategic movement, they might move too quickly and be able to just race to Moscow and the game would be over. Um, it, it is well, also. One of the problems, one oh. of the problems you can run into with East Front games as well is that even with a, a big wall of German units, there's oftentimes an opportunity to sneak some uh, Russian units back behind them mm-hmm. and cause all kinds of chaos for uh, supply checks. So, you know, I know that was one of my critiques with No Retreat is that, okay, yeah, so there's this this crazy ebb and flow to that game, but when the Germans are pushing, you have plenty of opportunity as the Russians to jump behind them and go and take cities, which cuts off their supply, which can be just devastating. So, you know, I wonder how much of that had to do with playtesting that specific thing. Like, that was originally in, and people were exploiting it to do some really kind of just gamey things for supply, or whether that was something that they had just sort of planned in for, um, you know, like you say, historical reasons. Yeah, I think it's it's a good point, because really what ends up happening is, you know, in the Eastern Front, units were famous for holding out in pockets for long periods of time, right. uh, German and Soviet. And you really have to kind of, because of the, the isolation rules are so strict as far, or rather so easy for tracing supply, you literally have to almost surround a group of units to isolate them. So, uh, yeah, it, while these are logical issues which from rule to rule, might seem weird and they, you know, I think they're unusual. When I look at the overall play of the game and how the units interact, I think they make sense, you know, as far as how the, the game plays out. Like I said, if you gave the German motorized units some kind of strategic movement, I think they might be too fast. Mm-hmm. Right. And the argument might be that, okay, maybe, uh, they have their chips. So because they have multiple chips, that reflects over the turn, the movement they get. So that's their motorized capability. The fact that there's a Guderian chip and they have a couple different Panzer Group chips. So they have multiple activations that you can choose. <coughs> so, um, the, and the only other thing was I had a hell of a time discerning between the second Panzer Group. Yeah. And the- <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. That's my only problem with this game is that the, the way the rules reference the chits. Or the counters. I, I look, and, and looking at the counters, you can't really tell what's what. One is the third. I only remember them because the third is the northern group. The second is the southern group. Mm-hmm. The third is gray with black on top. The the southern group, the second, is black with gray on right. top. Yeah. But when I look at their activation shit, it looks the other it's way around. opposite, right. Yeah. So... Mm. I constantly was having to check the rules until you get familiar with it. It's <laughs> yeah, uh, that was my one big complaint with this game. It's like I can't tell what I'm supposed to be activating. And another really cool aspect that that Adam put in the game was 
variable victory point values for cities and objectives that aren't known to the players until it's recaptured or the game is over. So some cities are gold cities, which are, have higher victory point values. Some are blue cities, but you don't know what it's worth because there's a, a hidden chip. So when the Germans capture objective, the Germans didn't radio back and say, hey, score more seven victory points. We got seven more. You know, they didn't know what it was going to be worth. They knew it was maybe worth more. So the German player doesn't really find out until the end, or if the Soviets recapture a city, then you you pick the victory points and put them face up on the city. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool that you knew you had to capture cities, but you don't necessarily know ahead of time. Like you're like, oh, I just need to capture this one four victory point city, and then we'll win. <laughs> it's like those weren't decisions that the generals made. So yeah, right, as the Germans, I just always capture Moscow and don't have to worry about it. It is possible. Oh, I've done it. Yeah, I played. I played Jeff and uh, Jeff. Hey, you're probably walking your dog right now. What's going on, Jeff? Uh, and I was the Soviets, and he was the Germans. Jeff's laughing right now. Jeff. Uh, so, uh, complete degenerate. That's <laughs> <laughs> our kind of guy. Yeah. Who knew I would find a blood brother in Canada? So, uh, I was the Soviets, Jeff was the Germans. We played it, and, and the first time we played, obviously, we were so drunk, it wasn't even funny. Uh, we <laughs> then generally we sobered up and then, and relatively speaking, uh, in, in games after that, but, but, uh, initially, I think Jeff had a had problem because he didn't push hard enough with his his motorized groups. That's and my so, issue. So he and and basically I was able to surround his northern panzer group because what I do is I bring in headquarters and just start building gigantic armies uh on the flanks or, or around the the Germans and I always try to get it to where I can activate multiple headquarters and then surround them and, and just tie them up with zones of control. So I had destroyed that northern panzer group, isolated and completely killed it. But he put together a really good... Oh, and Jeff also got kind of obsessed with taking Smolensk with his infantry, which allowed him to build a lot of strength around him. But but then what had happened was, because I brought in all my reinforcements to kill the Smolensk guys, which really have no value to me because they're infantry, he got his his southern panzer group past me. And I realized, looking at the turns... That towards the end of the turns, the Ger- the Soviets don't get that many reinforcements anymore. So he was able to kind of start making a run for it, and he almost got past me and got to Moscow. But I was able to get a bunch of elite divisions and kind of string them out in some kind of skirmish line to slow them down, which is probably cheesy, but whatever. <laughs> whatever it takes. So do you guys played a victory tonight, either of you? I have, I, yeah. What do you? Think I play. I figured out I played a victory lost. Right. That was the one that I ended up playing where you start as the Russians in like one small corner of the map and then break out. And that does, you're right about the, the rail lines. And that was what the guy that uh, taught me uh, basically said. He's like, look, here's the whole thing you need to know. Get on the rails and just go crazy once you get on those rails. Right. It's so stupid. Well, the, in the, in the way the game plays a lot is, um, it's really about zones of control more than a lot of other games, which is great because it teaches new players a concept that most games, besides war games, doesn't exist. So generally the concept is to enter a zone of control or to leave a zone of control, you pay two extra movement points. 
So to move from one zone of control to another in a clear hex is going to cost you five movement points. So motorized units are kind of able to power through zones of control, but infantry is always going to be left behind. Yeah, unless you can punch open a a nice hole and block that uh, zone of control to break break out and create a real pocket to break out from. Yeah, so generally what happens is uh, you want to get your, like, it's a traditional wargaming lesson to learn that you get zones of control behind the guy, and then a lot of the results are going to be retreat results. You're not going to get step losses, but if you can cause a retreat and he has to go through this under control, he loses the steps. So the vast majority of the step losses are going to be, if you're playing right, from retreating through zones of control. And uh, I, I saw some guy post where he said, oh, well, that's ridiculous, you know, that a, a unit that couldn't kill, take a step off of a panzer unit, like an infantry unit, could then, when it's retreating, suddenly cause an automatic step loss. But it's like retreating, dude. So they're strung out on roads and they're vulnerable and getting cut off and abandoning equipment. So to me, it is a traditional wargaming zone of control rule that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. What about you, Jason? What was your experience playing AVB? Um, I played it once solo and once opposed. Um, really enjoyed it. And like you said, it's a it's a good intro game. Um, I, I I think I have one that I would introduce people to before that, which is um, the Russo Japanese War, the MMP game. Um, similar. Well, it's a little less complex, which is really saying something because. Victory tonight's pretty, um, pretty easy to play, but it's it's interesting when you say that because when I think intro war games, like okay, let's play Commands of Colors or something like that. But but you're right, it doesn't have zones of control, it doesn't have supply, um, things like that. So I think a Victory Tonight is a good intro game. It plays pretty quickly. It plays pretty simply, other than the weird not knowing who you're actually activating when you pull a chit. Um, but it's, but a, it's a I think game. that's a great intro because so many games are like that now mm-hmm. with the chip pulls. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's a great way to to eke out a lot of value out of the games and ensure that it doesn't become solvable when you have that you know uncertainty about who's going to move next and where and what sounds like some VP uncertainty on top of that. I, I think those are some things that are just lasting mechanics that are going to make a game something you go back to time and again, particularly when it's easy because you're right. You want to have somebody over and just hit, bring a war game out and hit them with it and go, this is what it's all about. The rules aren't getting in your way. You're having that opportunity to get a game on the table and play. Well, I mean, that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be nose deep in a rule book for two weeks before they hit the table. Nobody wants to have a game where they've got to set up 2,000 counters every single time they want to play it. Those are games that are event games that people get excited to play at a convention or leave up in their room or, or, or in a basement. Those are the kinds of things that people do over the long term that are special. But the day-to-day war gamers war game has got to be one that you can pick up and play, that you can show to anybody, that you can get a good competitive game in, and that you can have some drinks along the way, stop and go grab some grub, do whatever you need to do to make that fun. Because it's it, it, if you're not able to have that social aspect at the same time that you're having the game and still have that kind of 
randomized element where you can have just the ecstasy of glory when you earn it and the agony of having the wrong chit come out at the wrong time, man, that's special. That's something that's hard to capture. And, and, and I thought the victory lost captured it well. And it sounds like they cleaned up the rules even more for victory denied. Yeah. And, and the Guderian chit for the Germans is just a great fuck you chit to drop on. So <laughs> like, Oh, that's the one I needed. Yeah. Like, no, because the, the beauty of it is one of the nice things too about the design is, the Soviets get one chit per headquarters, so they're limited. And the Germans get several chits per command group. So the Germans can put their chits in the cup and say, I'm going to focus this turn. I'm going to pull all three chits for the second panzer group, knowing they're going to drive. Soviets don't know that's going to happen. So until the chits start coming out, and they're like, another second panzer group chit? You know, they're like... And you just, you're like, yeah, I'm driving there. And that, you know, that Guderian shit, the nice thing about it is you can do a move with the second panzer group on an activation knowing yeah. you have Guderian shit up. So you're right. going to get an effective double move. So, so what would you say your rating is on this? It's, you sound pretty positive. It sounds like you had the only games this week that anybody should <laughs> care to play. I don't, you know, I don't usually play bad games because I, I read oh, so okay. many reviews. All right. No, I'm saying, I, no, I, I do so much research before I buy them, yeah. um, that I don't really, I don't normally give too many bad reviews. Uh, I'd say, I'd say it's like eight and a half. Alright. For quality. Uh, I think there's some great inflation here. Well, that's what I'm saying. I know, I know that's gonna come up because I, I rarely give bad grades, but the truth is, I don't own many games that I don't really like because I, I have carefully researched, I can't, I don't like spending money on a game, though. I'll tell you what, Seki Gahara, I might not like that game. So we'll see. If you don't, we'll we'll set something up here in. Uh, yeah, well, in I, I need to play with Jason because that might be an incoming stinker for me. So, but uh, I I think it's I give it eight and a half, and I'm giving it like ten beers because. Oh yeah, absolutely. and Samer, yeah, I'm going to say Samer thinks my beer scale's inflated, but I'm telling you, I think he's <laughs> no way. You know how you know how a victory loss was explained to me. I sat down, local guy here, just awesome, awesome gamer, friendliest guy ever, dude named Voss. I sit down across the table from Voss, he goes, you know war games? I'm like, yeah, he goes, okay, here's what the counter, de- here's what the counter details are, let's play. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and seriously, if you are familiar with war games, there are so few rules that have to be explained to you or that you will need to read in this game, you'll look at that rule book and go like, I get it. Yeah. And for a new war gamer, you start with the counter and just kind of explain it out and say, hey, look, this is how you move, this is how combat happens. We'll deal with the rest of this. But this yeah, is how you get started. Struggling, after struggling through the rule book of a world at war, it's nice to just sit down and push counters around. Exactly. Think about combat ratios. So you don't rule out SCS, man, because it's eight pages and it's the same thing. It's a big, dumb monster. It's a monster you're not going to be freaked out to go pull out of the closet because it's only, you know, I think I think uh, it never snows is something like, a couple hundred counters. It's not some, you know, monster counter for a five mapper. You was, can play was that sucker. SCS? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had they're, they're good games. I, I really like them. And it's basically attack, defense, movement, yep. and then like an exploitation phase. Yep. That's and, it. And you just grind it out. I mean, they're... That, grind it out is the best way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, so absolutely. So you've got 8.5 on the rating, 10 on the beers. Yes. Think you're going to play it again over Vassal soon? Oh yeah, I think I, I mean, Reeves and I play it all the time. So yeah, we need to set it up. Yeah, don't let that poutine fried <laughs> foie gras 
and not oh, yeah. come at it either. That would be shameful. That's I'm just going to lay that out there. No now, pressure, uh, last chance of victory, is that something we want to talk about a little bit? Or? No, let's... Okay. Let's save on that, because I'm, I'm about two hours into the first day, and I'll have a lot more to say um, once I get you know a couple days under my belt here, or at least the first full day and night under my belt, I'll have a lot more to say about it. Let me just say this. I looked at the, I looked over it, and I love that there's a little line of troops and a flag on the front of the line count. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. So we have some Worcester mail. We do. Uh, Here's, this is going to be our listener mail. Um, this is from Tony. Uh, and Tony says, good day, gents. He's Australian. Yeah, good day, Tony. Uh, one of the things I really like about the Advance After Combat team is that you play lots of war games. I want to play more war games, but I seem to end up getting distracted reading about the history or only get halfway through a game. I know you guys have hobbies other than war gaming, and yet you've always got something on the table and you play it to completion. My question is, and he has several questions, so that's that's deceptive. <laughs> How do you consistently play war games? Is it about scheduling or is it a state of mind? What keeps you playing regularly? Is a gaming room essential to playing war games regularly? Jason, you want to touch on that first, or you want to keep to go? Uh, I'll go. Um, I, I, I will say I play most of my war games solo, so there's that. Uh, I'm able to leave something set up, and I can tinker with it as I see fit. Um, I do have a bi-weekly, semi-regular buddy that I play with, uh, and we'll play kind of medium to lightweight war games but it's really about just dedicating to it and making the time i do have several <laughs> as we kind of talked about before we started recording several other um hobbies that i that i partake in and i read a lot and then you know we all have families but it's just about taking that time and dedicating it to it so with the solo stuff. I leave something set up, and even if I just look at it for thirty or forty minutes every night um, after the kids go to bed, that that gives me a chance to engage with the game. Um, separating time between whatever book I'm reading on the history of whatever I'm playing to actually reading the rules. Uh, it's just for me it's setting some designated time aside. I don't say, okay, you know, Sunday from 7 to 8, I'm going to only read rules or anything like that. But it's knowing, okay, I haven't sat down at the game table for a couple days. Um, let me go tinker. Let me go push some counters around. Or, hey, I'm getting ready to finish this game up. Let me, you know, break this new rule set out. Hey, hey Jason, let me ask you. Uh, on a daily basis, how often do you think about war games? Well, I... Um, my internet usage at work isn't really moderated, so um, the 10 hours I'm at work is mostly dedicated to war game talk or, or, <laughs> or thinking. Um, I, you know, I always have board game geek up, um, kind of trolling the guild, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm always looking at play rates to print out at work and rules to print out at work. So, you know, that that's not really fair. Um, because I can, I can take most of that time. But I realistically at home, I would say at least two hours. I'm reading rules or I'm playing a game. Um, probably two hours of, well, about an hour of every every night. 
Because my wife will be talking to me about, like, which blinds we should have mm-hmm. on the slider door. And I'm really thinking about, like, uh, how I can get a heavy armor for the Germans in a, in a World of War by 1942. You know, it's funny. You know, you mentioned something there that I think is so key to just the whole, all three questions, really. Um, with any hobby, there's a level of... Um, hesitancy to get involved. And it doesn't matter if that hobby is uh, woodworking or flying a kite or wargaming or whatever it might be. The biggest and most important thing you do with any hobby that, that you're thinking about is going and doing it. Mm. There's no substitute for just getting out there and making it happen. I threw around having a blog for years. Well, until you actually sit down and say, look, I'm going to do this, <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. Nothing's going to make that hobby happen for you unless you are the one who's actually moving those counters. And and whether you're moving them in a room where you have that set up or if you're limited on space, again, like I said, I'm not much of a vassal player, but I wholly support and think that every game company out there is doing themselves a disservice by not being on vassal if they aren't already because – that's a way that gamers can engage with that game in a digital, portable format and support what you're doing. They're going to be eager to buy that game because just because they can't get it on the table today doesn't mean that in a year or five years or another month they can't get it on the table or take it to their favorite local game store or whatever. Um, so I, I think if I had to encourage anybody to do anything, it would be you know, get off your ass, open a game box up, and just start moving counters around. Just don't even read the rules. Go in there and just poke around at the combat section and, and fight something out. It doesn't even matter what it is. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's going to help you learn that game. That's how I learn the games. I have to play them. I can't. I can't sit. I'm not a guy who can sit there and read the rules and then be like, "Oh, I get it now." I have to actually take it out and start pushing stuff around. Right. Absolutely. And, and I cannot stress that enough. I, I think that is the the number one hang up, and I think the internet is, is largely to blame for that because. You know, there's podcasts like this where you can get some great information and there are fantastic reviews out there and you can get in touch with designers and see all these great pictures. Well, guess what? That's all wonderful, but that's not actually being a part of the hobby. You know, that's what's special about the guild members. That's what's special about this particular podcast is that nobody here has done anything remarkable. We've just been the ones who have opened the box and done it. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I would just comment too. Uh, the big thing for me is having games. Like I, I do a lot of gaming on Vassal, which makes things easier because you don't have to have the physical game. So I don't know what Tony's physical situation is as far as if he's living in a, uh, a homeless shelter where it's difficult for him to set up Case Blue for more than a couple days, or if he's married or single, or what his situation is in an apartment or house. Um, what I what I always did is I I have the game set up. So uh, while I do play in Vassal, and that's really easy, um, like, for example, I have I have a game room, which has a World at War set up, and then I have a side, so that's like an 8x5 table, and then I have a smaller table that has, uh, you know, I think right now it has 1775 set up, because I wanted to check it out. And then yet I still, on our living room, in our living room on the coffee table, right in the middle of... Uh, Christmas vacation had Kingdom of Heaven set up completely on the table. Right in the middle That's of the house. With my mother-in-law there. <laughs> and, and the key is, when when I was 
single, and, and again, Tony, I'm going to, if, if you have to ask this question, uh, I'm going to assume maybe you're single because your wife probably would have already decided this issue for you. Uh, you know, I had an apartment, I had a game set up, I didn't care. If I, if I happened to meet a girl and brought her back to my apartment, hey, there's the game. Mm-hmm. You, know, you go into it, if it works out with that girl, she knows what you're interested in. When I got married to my wife, we had a deal. Part of, our, not part of the deal for getting married, but part of what we talked about was I would be able to game this many times a month and away in home conventions that I could attend. Cause I was basically like, hey, I'm not a work in progress. You know, this is me and I'm not going to change. So I'm always going to be doing this. It's something I'm very passionate about. I would say that I think about wargaming probably 15 times an hour at least. So, I mean, while I have other interests and I love my family and I'm into it, it's a hobby that I'm very uh, focused on. I really get a lot of pleasure out of. So I, I, I guess the idea is, First, it's a question of whether you have the space to set up a board game. Um, the, another another idea might be, I don't know, if you're going to meet someone, if you can, and this isn't what happened with me necessarily, but if you are single, try to meet a woman who has really low expectations. <laughs> a really horrible previous relationship. So she might have a conversation with you like, well, I see that uh, we were going to have the family over on Thanksgiving, but you've got Case Blue set up on our dining room table, but at least you aren't using intravenous drugs. That's right. So if you can find that special person who has really has really set the bar low for expectations, you might be, you might have a very happy working. <laughs> so uh, those would be, right. generally, I, I think basically the end That's is set up the games, have a game up, play it to completion. Uh, if you have a situation where you have a, a wife who doesn't want you to set up a game physically in the house, well, you've already screwed up. You, you should have followed my advice years ago before I had a podcast. Uh, and then you never would have been in this situation. But the the alternative is just doing Vassal because the beauty of Vassal is you can just click uh, scenario and it sets up everything for you. And then once you're done playing, you save and the game just goes into your computer, into the intranets. So, uh, I think, I think Vassal's great because I've been able to play games that I would never have been able to put out on the table, really. Mm-hmm. Or really, like, Victory Denied and Victory Lost are great. Kind of a pain in the ass to set up, though. Ah, the no, beauty no, of Vassal. Boom. Not too oh. bad. No, but I mean, again, I'm just like, it's, I can hit a Victory Denied and it's there, you know, it's all set up already for me, so. Yeah, but you're not physically moving stuff around. There's something for the tactile, tactile experience of wargaming. I mean, not everything is is luscious, but tactile experience of wargaming is kind of cool because you are able to grab stuff and move it off to the side and, and dick around with it. And that's kind of the the beauty of of you know a game like Rebel Raiders on the High Seas. You have to be able to do that, and that's one of the limitations of of Vassal, I think. But in terms of being able to play a game without concern for space, well, Vassal's the answer. I mean, it really, it, it is. It is just the answer. The biggest weakness with Vassal is nobody's invented a great matchmaking system for it yet. You know, I think there is a world of opportunity out there if you can create a system that lets somebody throw up really easily on a website, hey, I want to play Kingdom of Heaven, and this is the time zone I'm in, and let people go and and line up to do that because no one wants to read through forum posts. Nobody wants to go and like 
hunt somebody down that they think might play it and then message them and hope they respond positively. Right. If you just have that out there, you know, that's something that's going to help as well. So I, I think we're going to, that's the next big development in my mind for Vassal is this matchmaking system. And once that happens, there will be a, a lot more folks using that a lot more frequently um, as their primary gaming source. And one thing about the state of mind issue from Tony too, uh, you know, uh, my wife caught me the other day. I was in the game room uh, puzzling over a world of war, actually talking to myself. She wasn't real impressed with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, now, what the hell are you talking <laughs> Now, hang on. You said Tony's from Australia, right? Yeah. Today I, is the 26th here in the United States, so happy Australia Day. I guess it would be a day late, but happy Australia Day to, to Tony and all the, the Aussies that listen to the podcast for sure. Check out the big brain on feet. <laughs> I didn't know that was a I thing. love to interwebs. <laughs> well, um, right. I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to add or we want to wrap it up. I think Keith has to go. We should have talked about NWS, but I think maybe we'll just leave that for the guild. Yeah, hey, so some real quick things. Constant World Expo is getting geared up. We're all, all getting excited about that. So check it out. Uh, hit the guild. Make sure that you definitely uh, check out the guild on BGG, Advanced After Combat Guild. Our email is advancedaftercombat at gmail.com, but the little robot man will you know, tell you all that. Uh, Keith, you got anything you want to add? Uh, the interview with Uwe Eichert went up today on uh, gamesontables.com. Uh, part two is going to be coming up next. Part two is going to have more of a game bent to it. But if you want a picture of what a publisher goes through when they plan for a Kickstarter, you need to go and check this out. Um, I think there's some great advice in there for people who are fledgling uh, game designers. And uh, Uwe was, was very gracious to do uh, an interview with me despite me tearing apart conflict of heroes in the past and in my blog. So um, he was a good guy. And, and obviously I think um, his approach to this is, is really an interesting thing to listen to because he is a serial entrepreneur. So um, he's had a lot of success with the previous companies and, and it shows through in, in what he says. So definitely take a look at that and, and read through it. I think you're going to like part one, part two, again, not to tease too much, but you're going to see some, uh, information about what's next for Conflict of Heroes, and in particular, a really neat uh, AI system. Finally. Jason. Right. <laughs> Jason, you got anything? Nope, I'm good. You want to take us out? That's it? True. All right, thanks All right. for listening, everybody. I'll see you later. Have a good one. Visit us at http colon slash slash bardgamegeek.com slash guild slash one six six zero or contact us at advance after combat at gmail.com. What the fuck?